Are you ready, Liz? Ready. You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. W-A-P-G. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 448. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door, with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on Veterans Day, the 11th of November, 2020. In today's episode, an RAF pilot may become the first non-American to fly the president on Air Force One. A thin air flight attendant falls out of a parked plane. More news, your feedback, and today's plane tale, lest we forget. So get all settled in. Tray cables and seat packs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger and Flight 448 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger. He's an award-winning TV and radio reporter currently at the number one all-news station in the nation. 10-10 wins in New York City. Always great to hear from Radio Roger. Uh, This is the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast where we talk about aviation news and cover your great feedback. And joining us today from the lovely shores of Lake Wiley in South Kakalaki. She's a doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated backstabbing jumper dumper, Dr. Steph. There's just this great level of absurdity with this that I I love very much. So thank you for that. Uh, Good to be here. Glad to see you guys. Looking forward to an excellent episode today. Sorry about those guys. Uh, They're just like singing way too loudly. (laughs) Well, I think they probably only have one volume. Yes, I think so. And also joining us today from his mobile studio and the no from his studio. It's not mobile at all. It's the permanent one in the English countryside, a professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, retired captain for an international airline based in London. It's Captain Nick. Uh, Hi, Jeff, and hi, Steph. No, I have moved it. I've stuck it in a field of poppies. Oh, yeah, you you are in your mobile studio. Look at that. Yeah, I can't just stick it under my arm and walk out and find a... Mind you, uh, the lighting was a bit of a problem since it's dark. But how about go. how about the the bugs flying around? Are they any problem at all with no, the lighting? It's winter. Have? We don't get any bugs in the winter. Ah, well, very nice. Winter. What's that? Yeah, we get them all year <laughs> round here. <laughs> yeah, it's not a, most of them are pests. Almost yes. eighty degrees outside right now. It's humid oh, too. Oh, yeah, it's, it's okay. I was in shorts today, walking the dogs. It was like ten degrees centigrade. That's not bad. Fifty no. Fahrenheit. Yeah. Yeah. Take that. Not bad. All right. Well, you know what we should do? We should probably move right on into the news.
stand by for news. All right, let's start off with uh, item A in the news folder. It is a final report on an event that occurred in 2018, on October 10th of 2018. Uh, It was uh, an accident, Yakushia uh, SU-95 at Yakutsk on October 10th, 2018, overran the runway on landing. I don't remember us talking about this at all, but maybe we did. Not sure. Uh, I have a feeling the aircraft type rings a bell. Yeah. Okay. Well, they've come out with their final report. Okay. Let me just give you a little quick synopsis of the accident. Uh, they were performing flight uh, 414 from Ulan Ude. <laughs> I have no idea. To Yakutsk, Russia, with 87 passengers and five crew. They landed on Yakutsk's runway 23 left. Uh, 2,248 meters landing distance available. The runway threshold of the opposite end, five right, was displaced 1,150 meters. Uh, At about 3.21 in the morning, local time, it was dark, but could not stop ahead of the displaced runway end and went over an edge, causing the main gear to collapse. The aircraft came to a stop on the engines and tail, on the closed section of the runway. The aircraft was evacuated via slides. No injuries occurred. However, four people requested medical assistance and the number for the local accident lawyer. No, I have that part. <laughs> Bruises and a headache. Anyway, uh, the aircraft manufacturer. I was, sorry, I was go trying ahead. to unmute. I was going to say that normally it shows up in your mail, like, yeah. you know, after. <laughs> yeah. They, you don't go to them. They find you. They just know. How do they know? Oh, that's right. They're out there chasing those mm. ambulances. Um, the aircraft manufacturer, Sukhoi, uh, said that uh, they reported that the cause of the accident were external factors. Um, They're going to provide all requested assistance to the investigation. Basically, they were saying it was not our fault. And let's see. According to local sources, air traffic control reported standard braking action to the crew which did not meet the actual icy, slippery condition of the runway. Um, Let's see, at 4.50 local time, so I guess after the accident, the braking coefficients were measured at 0.27, 0.32, 0.25, an average of 0.28. And I guess the reported braking actions when they were coming in were like over 0.4. And apparently, I'm not sure exactly what those equate to, but it sounds like the 0.4 would probably equate to good braking action and the other braking action reports probably indicating that it's a little bit slippery out there. Is that correct, Nick? I I don't know. I don't have the access to the decodes anymore that I used to have, but I did note that uh, um, the crew, uh, sorry, the manufacturer say that uh, the MEL says you're not allowed to land in less than 0.4 oh so that must be pretty poor 0.27.25 definitely less than 0.4 yeah yeah and they didn't know they thought it was good to go in fact they were flying this airplane with a uh, one of the reversers i think the right uh hand right engine reverser or maybe the left i don't know it doesn't matter one of the engines uh, thrust reversers was um a maintenance carryover item that wasn't working it was locked out so they only had one thrust reverser, and I think in that particular condition, they weren't allowed to land 
uh, and anything less than 0.4. But anyway, the interesting. Ah, okay. Thing, now that might be it then. Yeah. The interesting thing I thought was that just a couple of hours before the same company, um, the same airline had another flight that came in. <laughs> Let me see if I can find that part. Um, uh, let's see. Two hours prior to the landing of this flight, another SU-95 landed on Yakutsk runway 23 left, but overran the end of the runway <laughs> despite use of thrust reversers and applying the parking or emergency brakes. It <laughs> uh, doesn't sound right. It must be an error in translation there. Uh, the aircraft turned around on the runway and vacated the runway via taxiway Delta, then stopped, reported slippery conditions, and requested to be towed to the apron. After arrival <laughs> at the apron. We, we don't want to drive in this anymore. Can <laughs> yeah, you just come get us, please? pretty slippery when you're asking to be towed. Well, it did say that they, were, they, they found when they got to the apron that their, the tires were damaged. Um, so, and they... They said also that they weren't they didn't they weren't aware that they overran the end of the runway. Okay. Was visibility? Yeah, I think <laughs> was I it think like completely was, snow covered? It, it looked good to us. <laughs> it, was, it, it was okay. Yeah. Um, the uh, accident investigation committee uh, reported that the talks of the crew between them clearly suggest that they were aware of the runway overrun but decided not to report it. <laughs> Uh, the crew reported I, in. Inter- I won't say anything if you don't say anything. <laughs> yeah, no one will notice. <laughs> Nobody will Definitely. know. Definitely, no one will know. Uh, they did notice the runway end lights, but didn't feel the aircraft went past the end of the runway. Now, the the same cannot be said of the flight that came in two hours later. They did feel <laughs> the end of the runway, so they're constructing that that displaced um, runway threshold uh, is because they were constructing the new part of the runway, which is, I guess beefier and thicker concrete and uh, so much so that the difference between the old surface of the runway and the new surface of the runway was i forgot the exact um, measurement of centimeters but it i I worked it out it's like just shy of 16 inches so uh, here's um thank you liz uh she put she's putting up an overlay on the video of the um you can see the (laughs) the difference uh you can see that big uh change in runway height elevation oh, i thought elevation. that was a ski jump to help you get airborne well i guess you could use it that way <laughs> it it didn't work so much in that capacity it didn't help for stopping it kind of took the main landing gear and sheared it off probably the nose wheel as well oh uh, mm. yeah not good so um, yeah i noticed they uh, got 4.38 g <laughs> for that that's kind of high love <laughs> Uh, yeah. I, I love this. <laughs> I highlighted this one. Uh, I, I always enjoy uh, reading some of these accident reports. And I, again, it's, I'm sure it has something to do with the translation from Russian to English. Uh, but it says the crew, after applying maximum thrust reverse, stowed the left reverser, the only one that was working at 100 knots. This early stowage of the thrust reverser was not a competent decision by the crew. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That might be a pretty accurate translation. I'm not sure. It might be. Yeah. I don't know. They're just completely passing judgment. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what they're supposed to do, I guess. Yeah. Nobody, nobody was hurt, it says, except for the people that were calling their lawyers. So, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I thought that was well, interesting. Well, it sounds like a, a, a real major... Uh, um, Lack of communication between the person supposed to measure the braking coefficient, air traffic, and uh, the aircraft. So mm-hmm. the crew, I think, were pretty much blameless. 
I think so too. And another interesting thing they said that uh, the the person that came up with this fictitious breaking action uh, could not explain how they came up with the <laughs> with that number. <laughs> I eyeballed it. Yeah, yeah, yeah it, looked, look, it looked you know not too slippery. <laughs> Point four. Uh, apparently, you know, accuracy is not that important at Yakutsk. 50% accuracy. Uh, yep. Mm. I love the way uh, all the slides deployed, even though the aircraft was so low, having ripped the gear off, you yeah. could have just stepped off the slide. True. Yeah, they didn't need slides, did they? Not really. <sighs> all right. So clearly, in this case, they were less than 50% accuracy. I'm trying uh, to find it. Yeah, I think it's down a little there bit further go. down. There we go. Good. That's our new <laughs> our new label <laughs> below 50%. Thank I you. I've seen that one before. Andy <laughs> in uh Hamilton, Canada. Is that right, Liz? Correct. Okay. Yeah. Thank you very much for that. Oh, he sorry. He thought it would come in handy for some reason. <laughs> yeah, Liz says Andy thought it might come in handy for some reason. Yeah, thanks Andy. Andy Back knows as well. Mm -hmm. um all right let's move on to this one this is kind of interesting um in van nuys california southern california a suspect who led police on a chase friday on the runway of van nuys airport was arrested and will undergo a mental health evaluation officials said the suspect who was not identified was taken into custody at about 9 a.m after barreling through a fence at woodley and satikoy i guess those must be streets L.A. Airport Police says he cooperated with officers, but also rambled about being followed by the government and the Mexican cartel. Um, so let's see. We have a little video from the uh, local affiliate. So let's, let's go to video now of this pursuit. It was captured from above. Sergeant Pierce tells us it started this morning when someone reported a man had gotten into the airport and was driving recklessly. Whee! The LAPD sent an airship and several units. Airship. Three pit maneuvers were executed, but the man got around all those. Not clear yet how he got into the airport, so airport police is going to look into that breach of security. This airport has lots of corporate and celebrity flights, all private, no commercial planes. We have learned the car was not stolen. Officers say it belongs to the man's girlfriend, who they will now speak with to try and figure out how and why all of this took place. Ex-girlfriend. I was going to say the same thing, Liz. said <laughs> you, t you took it right out of my mouth. Ex-girlfriend. Right. <laughs> Honey, I'm going to borrow the car today. Going to do a little driving on the airport, Van Nuys, because mm -hmm. I got to get away from the Mexican The government and the Mexican cartel is coming after me. <laughs> yeah, like driving around the airport, that's going to fix everything. Did, did you see oh, that? Well, maybe he had the thought to get on a plane and escape. <laughs> did you see that? He almost got, he got caught up with an airplane there. Did you see that biz, business yeah, jet? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's a good job we don't have rear vision mirrors. <laughs> that guy be going, what the? Whoa, what is that? <laughs> Why is there a car chasing me down? Yeah. Uh, this is an interesting part. Um, the, um, the police officer, uh, uh, Sergeant Charles Pierce, said, I don't know whether he was trying to steer with his knees or whether he wasn't steering at all. I guess he was had the sunroof open and at times had both hands and arms. Oh, yeah, out I did, did see that. He did appear to be like just standing somehow. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what his problem is, but he's got Perhaps a lot of problems. Medication now. was involved. Yeah, medication was probably involved. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, continuing to move on. To item C. RAF pilot is set to become the first non American to fly 
the U.S. president on Air Force One. An RAF pilot said, oh, I just read that. Uh, the wing commander will fly the president, his advisor, and distinguished guests with the elite team of military aviators. The pilot, who has not been named because he's just too embarrassed, uh, will first fly and co-pilot other aircraft before being placed on the reserve list for Air Force One. Now, they have this photo here. Uh, it says an RAF pilot is set to become the first non-American to fly the president on Air Force One, pictured. Now, it's it could a, be Air Force One. I was going to say, you know, technically, I don't think they... It could be. <laughs> I don't think they realized when they put the picture on, it's a, it's one of the 757s in the, uh, in the 89th airlift wing. Uh, but as Steph accurately pointed out that if the president of the United States is aboard the 757, it is Air Force One. So I guess we'll give them a break on that one. But I have a feeling, Steph, and I think you'd agree that the they journalist meant to put the had no clue. They just looked at the paint scheme and thought yeah. that looks like Air Force One. It's an airplane. And it has that light blue and white color. Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry, BC-25, yeah. Thank you. Um, a source told the Sunday Express, the wing commander chosen served a number of years in the U.S. and is well acquainted with how the U.S. Air Force operates. And that didn't keep him from volunteering to become a pilot for Air Force One. Wow. Yeah, we were having him uh, go through a, a, a psychiatric assessment as well. <laughs> Apparently, the RAF kicked this particular gentleman out of their service. Uh, let's see. The president and his top team have 15 converted aircraft for official visits, which includes two VC-25s, which take turns serving as Air Force One. The VC-25s, a military variant of the Boeing 747, uh, boast a private office, a medical room, a conference room, and a communications hub, and can be refueled in the air. A source said the addition of the former RAF pilot represents the symbolic culmination of a four decades old and deep-rooted exchange program between the U.S. Air Force and the Royal Air Force, founded on trust. RAF pilots have previously flown, co-piloted, and crewed U.S. and that's not C-R-U-D-E, but C-R-E-W-E-B, U.S. <laughs> aircraft, including the stealth bombers, U-2 and B-2 Spirit. So let's uh, Most certainly, yeah. In fact, uh, I remember I had one boss when I was a youngster in the Air Force who uh, was a bit busy to do his own logbook. He, so he used to get find a junior pilot and say, uh, go and fill in my logbook, Sonny. So uh, I, I went off and I started filling in his logbook and i just happened to leaf through it and uh he had a whole series of uh flights uh you know a couple few years worth but there was no aircraft type put there so uh i i subsequently found out that he had been a u2 pilot oh. um and uh another chap i know good friend and also uh a ex-virgin captain well he probably still is uh, I knew he flew the first stealth fighter, uh, what, Nighthawk, yeah. That right? mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, it, we have uh, exchange pilots operating uh, with um, a number of countries, uh, their air forces. Of course, I was lucky enough to get an exchange job myself with the Australians, but we've got a, a lot in uh, America working with the Navy, the Marines, as well as uh, United States Air Force uh, flying all types, and uh, it's it's a much valued um, posting for us because 
it's a fantastic experience to go fly a different type mm-hmm. in a different country. Um, and you know, we, we love doing it. Um, but, uh, they're right. It's, it's a, it's a deep rooted and, and, uh, very valuable, um, way of making sure that we understand each other's modus operandi. Uh, we can take good ideas back home from the air force that we've operated in. Uh, and, um, it just shows a level of trust that, uh, you know, you don't often get between countries and their secret military equipment. Very true. I heard it was the, the way for, let's say, um, in this case, the RAF trying to get rid of somebody they don't really want anymore. And so that they, that they say yeah, that it's yeah. kind of like very make, good for that. That's only the ones they <laughs> send kidding. to Australia. We don't want this Blake around <laughs> only, anymore. What did you say, Liz? That's only the ones they send oh, to Australia. Only the ones they send to Australia. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for uh, the clarification. Okay. Right. That was from the control mm. room. <laughs> well, you see, it used to be an old uh, uh, colony for um, prisoners. Exactly. Uh-huh. It was a, convict colony so that's probably why they do that <laughs> no only the best of the best get picked for those kind of assignments we all know the truth so <laughs> that's why Nick but is- it's great i mean the very first pilot to get onto uh, the uh, unit that flies uh, the president around that you know is a great honor yeah very much so all right um moving on this one we have in the uh, news uh, notebook because of our Good friend and aviation blogger, uh, Jen Niffer, who has this thing about air stairs. And this, unfortunately, is not a positive story about air stairs. We did cover stairs. this originally, too. Pardon me? We did cover this originally. Yes, we did. Uh, Liz is pointing out that we did cover this accident when it occurred back uh, in January of this year. Pre-COVID. A fin, yeah, pre-COVID, yes. A Finnair Airbus A320-200. Registration Oscar Hotel Lima X-ray Delta performing flight 450 from Oulu to Helsinki in Finland had completed an uneventful flight with a safe landing, had taxied to the gate. The passengers had disembarked. A flight attendant opened one of the aft doors and fell off the aircraft about three and a half meters down onto the tarmac. Emergency services took the flight attendant to a hospital. Uh, the airline confirmed the flight attendant fell off the aircraft while opening an aft door, a very unusual and rare event. So that was kind of the original narrative from January. Uh, since that time, uh, Finland's, um, you want to help me with that uh, pronunciation, um, Nick? Because uh, uh, you speak Finnish, I think. I've just put it into uh, the chat room, and I hope that they'll come up with well, the here. pronunciation pretty soon. How about this? Onnettomuustutkintakeskus. <laughs> Did you get that? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> We're just going to say perfect. Their accident investigation board in Finland released the final report in Finnish and an English summary. The probable causes of the accident were number one, the stairs did not back out immediately after the passengers had exited the aircraft through the aft door. The purser asked by announcing on the public address system, if anyone had shown the okay sign to the driver of the stairs. Conclusion, the LK sign was not communicated to the other cabin crew members. As a result, the cabin crew's situational awareness was not adequate. A cabin crew member, or CCM number two, being the oldest one in the aft section of the cabin, realized that she was responsible for the LK sign. Uh, so let's see. what. So here, I'm going to distill what happened here. Um, the stairs were there to disembark the passengers onto a bus. And then 
apparently they gave the sign for them to remove the stairs from that door so they could close that door. And, but the stairs only moved a little bit because the bus was still in the way. And so this older cabin crew member kind of opened the door again to say, Hey, you know what, why are you not moving the stairs away? Um, when she walked onto the top of the stairs, uh, they were still close enough to the aircraft for her to make that transition from the airplane to the stairs. However, I guess when she turned around to go back to the, well, I might be getting this wrong. At some point, the gap um, increased from widened, yeah, yeah, from the end of the air stairs to the airplane itself. And I guess this cabin crew member did not realize that that had occurred and basically stepped right off the edge of the of the boarding stairs. Yes, that and I think um, broke collarbone. And there's a description in here somewhere of. Her injuries. Um, there were serious injuries, a couple of broken bones and uh, uh, contusions, I think, to her head. Um, anyway. Well, this isn't the first time this has happened. And, uh, of course, we reported a while back that uh, someone in the Far East had done made a similar mistake and they died. Yeah. I think it was Japan. Yeah, I um, remember. Yeah. Uh, you know, head injury. Um Dreadful picture, lots of pools of blood and stuff. So mm. it is, <laughs> it's really important that uh, these procedures are absolutely um, beautifully uh, organized so that there is a little risk as possible and that people don't you know, go outside of them to try and expedite things. Right. Yeah, just got to be so careful um, when you're, anytime you're operating any, anywhere near a, an airliner. Um, even though you might feel it, it's perfectly safe, especially when you're so up high off the ground. Um, and a lot of the airplanes like the Airbuses and the bigger Boeings. Fortunately, my airplane, I, I, think say, I, I was going to say, how does the uh, 717 compare? <laughs> it's pretty close to the ground, actually. <laughs> I was, in fact, as an aside, um, I've, I've done a couple of walk arounds now and, um, I'm, I'm feeling like I'm a really tall person now. <laughs> yeah, I crawl around. Not quite that bad, Liz, but it's it's definitely a little bit lower to the ground than than the uh, Mad Dog 88 and 90. Uh, not that Can they you were that walk high off under the, the fuselage. Pardon? Can you walk under the fuselage? Uh, no, you cannot walk under the. You can you can crouch. Yeah, or do you limbo. Duck, yes, you can duck walk. You can duck, <laughs> you can duck walk, but it's it's not comfortable. Let me tell you that. And even under the wing, uh, you have to duck a little bit, which I didn't have to do before. Yeah, not duck. I just heard a duck. Anyway, duck, <laughs> duck, duck, goose. Um. Anyway, back to the uh, story here. So, um, I'm not. I'm assuming that this uh, crew member is has recovered from. Or is recovering mm -hmm. from? It says she is on the way to recovery. That's good. Because it really, I mean. She something. can move arms and legs. Ah, good. Important. Which is good, yes. Yeah. Yeah. It said the description of injuries was a couple of broken ribs, fractured collarbone, and some wounds on her head requiring a couple of stitches. Oh. So I guess not any. I broke a collarbone once. Well, I mean, those are the ones that they reported. Yeah. You know. Yeah, mm. she's probably lucky she didn't do more damage to herself from a... Oh, you could have a, you know, significant head injury, depending mm -hmm. on how you fall from that kind of height, for sure. Yeah. Internal injuries. All right. Um, 
moving on to this one I thought was interesting. Uh, this is from the uh, Aviation Herald. Uh, a PIA, Pakistan International Airlines Airbus A320-200, registration Alpha Papa Bravo Mike X-Ray, performing flight 352 from Karachi to Quetta, Pakistan, was in the initial climb out of Karachi's runway 7 right when the crew requested to stop the climb at flight level 050, 5,000 feet approximately, and enter a hold to check some parameters. The crew subsequently advised they were still waiting for advice from their maintenance department and climbed to flight level 070. The crew subsequently requested to return to Karachi, requesting one of the runways, 25. Uh, the active runways were still 07. And they advised that they had some fault. And <laughs> yeah. there was a some fault. And we're performing a precautionary return. The aircraft landed safely on Karachi's runway 25, left about 25 minutes after departure. And that's it. That's the whole, all the information that we have from that. They had some fault. Very generic. Yes. We have a fault. <laughs> We're not sure whose fault, but we have some fault. And there you go. I don't know what you want to do with that one, but I just thought it was Are we allowed to guess what the fault was? Uh, yeah, go ahead. They left the gear down. <laughs> you think so? Maybe. No. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just trying to think of what would make them turn around so soon. I don't know. They, I have uh, no clue. Uh, they forgot to go to the toilet. Uh <laughs> No, that would be an inconveniencing, and and we're going to talk about that here on the next item. Ah, you ready? Yep. Mm -hmm. All right. Again from Simon Radke's uh, Aviation Herald. Uh, a Vueling—that's a Spanish airline, right? A Vueling mm -hmm. Airbus A three twenty two hundred. Pardon? Yes, Vueling? I believe it's. Uh, oh, is it Vueling? Vueling. Yeah. Okay, I'm Vueling. Vueling. How do you say it? Well, I guess. It's I would have said whaling. Okay. Well, you're probably Vueling, right. But butter. Okay. Uh, they were performing a flight from Geneva, Switzerland to Barcelona, Spain, uh, en route at flight level 290, about 16 nautical miles north of Marseille, France. Know it well. Oh, I don't. When the I'll crew be down that way a lot. Ah. When the crew declared an emergency and diverted to Marseille for a safe landing about 22 minutes later. The French BAA, B-E-A, uh, how's that again? Bureau d'enquête et d'analyse. Thank you. Okay. Um, reported the occurrence was rated a serious incident and is being investigated. The crew felt strongly inconvenienced after climbing <laughs> through flight level 100. something was lost in the translation. <laughs> I think so. Out of Geneva, Don, their oxygen masks subsequently declared an emergency and diverted to Marseille. Uh, the passengers and cabin crew were not inconvenienced. <laughs> now, are you sure? Seems to me the passengers would have been inconvenienced for the divert to Marseille. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But I guess this word is used or has a different meaning, perhaps. I don't know. Um, that sounds to me like it was some kind of a toxic fume event. Uh, let's see. The BEA concludes in their report at the end of taxiing for departure and holding short behind a departing Cessna citation. The pilots of the A320 complained about an unpleasant smell and about irritations. During the climb, the crew experienced partial incapacitation. Recognizing their partial incapacitation, the flight crew requested supervision by the lead flight attendant and donned their oxygen masks, which permitted them to successfully divert and land without further incident. 
Despite a broad spectrum of actions undertaken, the investigation was not able to identify the origin of symptoms and discomfort experienced by the crew. The hypothesis of excessive inhalation of carbon monoxide, possibly from the exhaust gases of the Cessna Citation jet ahead of them, uh, is consistent with the information collected and may explain the symptoms, uh, vertigo and nausea. Uh, compounds of nitrogen oxides and sulfur oxides in the exhaust fumes may also have contributed to acrid odors and irritating feelings while flying. However, another... I get irritated quite often. <laughs> <laughs> I think the first officer was just irritating him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, <laughs> we know is how we send stuff. Yes. <laughs> um, they did take samples uh, from the crew members, uh, saliva, blood, and urine. But as we know, as time goes on, the uh, evidence uh, of of contamination may have kind of worked its way through the system, may not be present in high enough levels to come to any kind of conclusion. But they uh, did kind of go in a little bit more detail here in the report. Uh, when they were waiting for takeoff, I think they were behind, let's see, um, uh, I'm trying to find the actual place here. I thought I'd found it, but I was wrong. Um, they were waiting for takeoff for like four to six minutes or something like right behind. They were probably too close to the citation jet. I think the winds were calm. Uh, so that didn't help blow the exhaust from the uh, citation jet. And, uh, I think the intakes for the air conditioning packs on the, uh, A320 were positioned in such a way that they were sucking up all those exhaust fumes. Although, which is interesting to me. And maybe uh, you have some idea about this, Nick. I guess there are probably a couple of different um, inlets for uh, the air conditioning systems. And it's possible that the one that was most exposed to these exhaust gases was the pack that supplies a majority of the air to the cockpit. Because it said that the, the cabin didn't seem to have any of this kind of um, experience they were at all. Not yeah, I don't quite understand that. Once, when, if you're on the ground with the engines running, uh, there are no external vents. Uh, as such, there are um, vents to allow the um, uh, air in the cabin to exhaust. But you, you're you're using the uh, bleed from the engine that you're running to uh, ventilate to uh, air condition the cabin. You're not really pressurizing it as yet, but you're certainly conditioning it. So all the air in the cabin is going to come through that running engine uh, or the APU. Um, but uh, And you can get smells, uh, but, you know, that you're not – I'm just trying to think where the engines and a citation are. It's not that big an airplane. You, you have to put a bit of a crosswind to get it into that running engine, assuming they only have one engine running. But, you know, uh, considering the number of toxic oil events we get from – aircraft engines and we've heard of quite a few my suspicion is that it's more likely to be that but uh, they've got to investigate all possibilities yeah well i did find that paragraph finally a radar examination revealed the a320 was holding behind the cessna for nearly four minutes the winds were calm the axes of both aircraft suggested the conditions were conducive to the formation of the concentration of exhaust gases at the front of the Airbus. The gases could be ingested by the Airbus's engines and enter the cabin via the air conditioning systems or packs, mixing 60% of bleed air or ambient air with 40% recircled air from the 
or recycled, I think that would be the right way, or maybe recirculated air from the cabin. It's probable as pack number one supplies the cockpit, the ingestion of fumes occurred mainly by the left engine. So I guess, you know, um, anyway, basically the reason why I wanted to cover this is because, um, the flight crew was seriously inconvenienced. I just kind of of tickled me. (laughs) Don't want that to happen. Uh, I thought it was interesting they took blood samples to check for carbon monoxide, but didn't do anything else with them. Hmm. Uh, what are you like? Come on, guys. You just had a <laughs> uh, a major event that you really do need to check for all levels of toxicity, regardless of what they are. The monoxide was perhaps a good guess, but try everything, for heaven's sake, so we've got some idea of what caused this. Well, here's an interesting fact that I just noticed. The... Uh Cessna Citation jet was examined and the crew interviewed. The aircraft had undergone major maintenance between August 16th and September 29th in 2017, during which the right-hand engine had been removed for overhaul at Pratt & Whitney and following maintenance was approved for a remount on the aircraft. Following that maintenance, the aircraft flew 53 hours until the occurrence. Two days after the occurrence, the metal particle detector in the right engine triggered. The oil filter was replaced and sent for analysis. No anomaly with the engine oil was found, and they didn't find. They did an oil leak test, and they revealed no leaks. Okay, never mind. That was nothing. <laughs> no, there was something. Checked out. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Never mind. Yeah. I don't know what happened there, but I hope they're doing okay. And as you said, it could have been a much more serious event. Absolutely. Yeah. And I thought this was interesting. Maybe I'm the only one that does, but uh, you know, in this covid time that we're operating in a lot of airplanes around the world are being stored and i saw oh, this sorry um, jeff um could i just ask steph a question relating sure. to that last um thing? oh yeah 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 sure thanks very much um because they mm-hmm. said they the crew went on oxygen um mm-hmm. which may eliminate or reduce levels of carbon monoxide in the blood mm-hmm. uh i'm not sure that's true carbon monoxide takes some time to uh be released by the hemoglobin. I mean, so it kind of goes back to what Jeff was saying in terms of how much time actually did pass a little bit there. Well, presumably um, this is while they're airborne, while they were doing that 22-minute mm-hmm. recovery. So they've got sure. the symptoms there at 20, Or, uh, you know, feet. the level of carbon monoxide that they were actually exposed to. So, in terms it's of... It's just that I, the way I understood the way carbon monoxide worked was that... Carbon monoxide has a higher affinity... Yeah. Uh, and even if you take extra oxygen, you're not actually going to get rid of any of the carbon monoxide for quite some time. I don't know the, the time frame on that, to be honest. Okay. I'm just thinking back to my dive training. Yeah, I'm not sure. You know, it depends on how long those sam- how long afterwards those samples were taken. I, I don't know. So. Yeah. Okay. Thanks very much. Sorry, Jeff. Sorry. No, no, no problem. That wasn't super um, helpful, but good question. Mark Anderson in the chat room. Um, Brings up a good point. Maybe the chemtrail generators were switched on in the citation. Oh, didn't think about that, Mm-mm. did we? And of course, that would not be in the report. They were set to inconvenience? Yeah, set to inconvenience. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Well, a good job they didn't set them to incontinence, didn't they? <laughs> well, that would have been messier. <laughs> well, that could be another kind of a, of a very severe inconvenience. We're supposed to talk about all these different functions. (laughs) So many choices. So we need to jot that one down. Set for inconvenience for a show Mm -hmm. title, maybe? I don't know. I got it. Anyway, um, 
so going back to the uh, stored airplanes and um, you know these airplanes have a lot of electronics and um, battery systems are quite complicated and the european aviation safety agency easa released a safety information bulletin uh, number 2020-18 warning that nickel cadmium batteries of aircraft and storage could lose capacity and no longer provide minimum run time required for safe operation of the aircraft I th- did i say rum time i didn't mean to run time i'm thinking i mean a rum and coke would be really nice right now anyway um <laughs> EASA argues the aviation world has been heavily hit by the COVID-19 pandemic and an unprecedented number or unprecedented, if you prefer, of aircraft have been grounded. This situation has caused severe financial pressure on air operators as well as on their service providers. Prior to the restart of start of operations, it's vital that aircraft were, that were put into storage for weeks or months are restored to an airworthy condition. Aircraft maintenance manual aircraft parking procedures usually require the physical disconnection of the aircraft batteries and the periodic reconnection to carry out the parking or storage checks. A type certificate holder in conjunction with a battery manufacturer has identified that when a nickel-cadmium NI-CD battery is disconnected from the aircraft loads, it self-discharges due to an electrochemical phenomenon thus inducing a reduction of battery capacity. Phenomenon. 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 When the battery is... We have fun here. We do. When the battery is charged again from the aircraft, the battery does not recover 100% of its initial capacity. Therefore, after each cycle of battery self-discharge, the... Oh, that's kind of messy. The available battery capacity will decrease progressively. This reduction of capacity cannot be reversed by the normal aircraft charging system, and the reduction in total capacity cannot be detected without the battery being sent to an approved battery shop for a battery recharge check or overhaul. So, in other words, they're kind of concerned because the self-discharging is happening, <laughs> and uh, you know we we rely on our airplanes for this battery to provide a minimum amount of power to provide our critical instrumentation and aircraft systems so that if we lose complete you know all of our electrical generation that we have enough power to get the airplane on the ground in a and it's usually about a a 30 minute to 45 minute time frame but if the if the battery is not healthy you know you may not have that much that's that's a serious thing it is and particularly an electric airplane like the airbus where you know you can fly a lot of other types because you've Still got control of the engines and the control surfaces, but mm-hmm. an Airbus, nah. Yeah, yeah. That battery runs out and you're stuffed. You're really, really hurting, right? Yeah. I mean, you, you can keep it airborne just uh, in mm-hmm. the, the few um, mechanical controls you've got left, but uh, yeah. you can't really, you're not really in a good position to land it. That'd be a dire situation. Hmm. Mm. Makes me shiver just thinking about it. Uh-huh. Oh, going back to the rum. Shiver me timbers. Oh, my gosh. All right. Someone get this man a rum and coke. <laughs> yeah, please. <laughs> rum and coke, please. Staff. Hello. If you're not busy in the bathroom, get me a rum and coke. Something yeah, tells me he's busy. Make sure he washes his hands first. <laughs> yeah. Kind of watered down, hands. I would think. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You could uh, end up with more rum than you expected. <laughs> Thank you. 
for that. All right. Guess what time it is? Yes. Getting to know us. Mm. Ah, you know, it really hasn't been a long period of time between the time we recorded episode 447 and this episode 448. But I'm sure that things have happened in our lives. And uh, I'm going to ask Dr. Steph if anything interesting has happened since last week's show. Nah. No? Okay. We'll move on then to... Just kidding. <laughs> Nick? No, definitely um, interesting. Um, got to see some friends this week. Actually, yesterday. Oh. That was kind of nice. Well, I think... Um, uh, so we have a photo... Uh, and somewhere in one of our overlays here. Let's see if I can find it before Liz does here. I got it. Is that what hey. you're talking about? Yeah. Well, look at those three I attractive know. individuals. So this was fun. Um, I knew that uh, Pip was going to be in town on a layover. Um, he does his recurrent training here in the States, and um, his company had routed him through Charlotte with a quite a generous amount of layover time. So I said, oh, I can figure out and make that work and come by the airport and see you and have a beer or two and dinner and whatnot. So we totally had that planned for a couple of weeks time once we had confirmation that that was still going to happen amidst all our craziness with COVID restrictions and everything else. Um, so that was great. He um, yeah, they actually arrived early. And so we had a little bit of extra time even to chit chat and sit down and enjoy some nice wicked weed beers because they have wicked weed beer at the charlotte airport now which Good was stuff. lovely um i think we had some bojangles for dinner <laughs> oh that's <good laughs> i stuff actually too. legitimately was looking for something more health- healthy but yeah. pip heard fried chicken and biscuits and that's where we went so. what, do you, what do you think of bojangles is that the first time that he's had it? i think that's the first time he had it yeah, yeah. he was that's a good. little concerned at what we call biscuits I'm like they're not cookies they're yeah you know biscuits they're more savory was, than sweet yeah he goes oh it's a scone i said no it's a biscuit um no, biscuits are crunchy no, no. these oh, are no. flaky they are soft i promise you no no. <laughs> no no well next time you're in town nick we'll, uh, we'll i've, I've had biscuits. i've had your your version of biscuits yeah and the anyway. gloopy stuff you call grits which isn't at all gritty well actually it is a bit it's not yeah. really no, grits aren't gritty. You would think that, like, you put it in your mouth and it'd be like chewing on sand or something, but it's not yeah. anything like that at all. Like baby vomit. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Tell us what you really think. Yeah, well, what you've, you not, really think? you've just not had good grits, then that's all I'm going right. to say. Yes, we'll, we'll I agree. We'll fix that, too. Okay. Definitely. Um, but anyway, so then we were there, and I had actually been um, chatting with Rick about today's show previously, like earlier in the day, mm-hmm. and he mentioned he was, um, the reason he's not here, I guess we should say, is that he's actually spending some time with family this afternoon, evening. Mm-hmm. Um, so he mentioned that he was going to be traveling there, and I was just thinking about logistics. I was like, any chance you're coming through Charlotte on your way there? And he goes, oh yes, actually I am. I said, well, Pip and I are here. You want to, you have time Brilliant. for a beer? He goes, well, I got like 45 minutes. I was like, I'll have the beer for you at the gate. So we... Walked over there. I didn't tell Pip who was coming, so he was surprised, which was kind of fun. Mm-hmm. And so. yeah, we had a chance to chat for a few minutes, and then we all went our separate ways. It was fun. So Pip was surprised, but not pleasantly. <laughs> he was surprised. We'll say that. Okay. <laughs> Pip, of course, being of the Plane Safety Podcast, so another oh, yeah. fine and they, podcast. They put out a very, um, a very similar type of show um, uh, to ours, um, their last episode, right? 
Or was it the Very, one before? Yes. They, I think uh, they were going for a hostile takeover of the APG while we were yeah. on break. And uh, yeah, nice our lawyers try, are still listening nice to that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we will. You know, it was nice seeing you yesterday, but there's going to be some action taken <laughs> in the election. Unfortunately, it was very entertaining for sure. Yes, yes it was. I enjoyed it. Um, so yeah, that was really nice. It was a nice way to um, spend a Tuesday afternoon. So did you um, just hang out at the airport and go home, or did you? Go out and fly yourself. Nah, I took a little mileage run to Philly and back. Was that? Uh, I was a, there legitimately. I had a ticket to go somewhere. Was that a normal oh. kind of a flight from uh, Charlotte to Philly? Yeah. Oh, okay. I thought there well, was. Oh no, no. It was actually was, uh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. I forgot about that actually. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we uh, and silly me. So usually when I've done these in the past, and I could do these occasionally here and there, just to make sure that I have enough miles in the bank to maintain uh, the. The status I've worked so hard for and spent all my money on. Um, usually, I pick flights that are same aircraft out, same aircraft back. So that way, you know, I don't miss connections or anything crazy and don't have to spend a lot of extra time on the ground, which is what I thought I booked this time around. Apparently not. Two separate aircraft mm. with only like, uh, it's like 30 minutes turn in Philadelphia. Oh. <laughs> and different yeah. gates and different airplanes. Different and... gates, which I didn't realize. Oh, boy. Thought it was the same air- that was going to be the same aircraft. It was not. This was my mistake. Uh, rookie mistake or something. I don't know. <laughs> um, but anyway, not, anyway uh, getting to Philadelphia, uh, apparently Washington Center had a COVID um, event or had to be closed for their Tracon facility had to be closed for extra special cleaning. So we got routed all the way out to Ohio and then back to Philadelphia. Well, they flew you around Washington because they were cleaning Washington. Yes. Essentially. <laughs> that's, that's what happened. So we landed and got off the plane and I, you know, like, all right, well, I'm just going to get back on this plane here in a minute. And I look at my, you know, I happen to pull everything up and it's like, uh, your flight's been boarding for like, you know, 15 minutes already, 20 minutes. I went, well, that's interesting. Oh, this is not the gate I'm leaving from. Hmm. Oh, this is when I you realized. Go. Yeah. <laughs> Did you miss the flight? No, I got it. I oh, made it. good. Yeah, it was fine. But I thought I was going to have time maybe to find like a cheesesteak or something. And oh, no. Food and no, no. No, no. That didn't happen. Just straight to gate, back on plane, back home. All right. Yeah. And apparently, um, whatever cleaning was going on was because um, captain of the second flight said the same thing, that we were going to have some additional flying time because of the, the closure of Wash Center. And then we flew straight through that area. So I guess it got fixed. I have a covid cleaning story myself oh geez but go, go. ahead um yeah, no no that's that's, that's, that's okay it. well um i'll do i'll do my little section then mm. um on a trip this week uh my first trip on my own uh no instructors slash evaluators with Hooray! me and uh yeah it was it was i really enjoyed the trip a great first officer he'd been on the airplane for about seven years and um really really nice guy and uh just felt really at home already um still you know working out the little nuances of the automation system and everything else but uh you know if if i can't figure it out i just turn everything off and fly the airplane it works just fine like that um but um this morning uh, we were leaving tulsa oklahoma and uh there was not commotion but there was something going on at the gate and this passenger was concerned because they were going to miss their connection i'm thinking why would they be missing their connection? And they said, because, well, for some reason, you're not scheduled to get in until like a half an hour past the 
scheduled arrival time. And I'm thinking, what? Why is that? So uh, come to find out that Memphis Center was doing a COVID cleaning and Memphis Center airspace was down. So everybody had to be routed around uh, the Memphis Air Route Traffic Control Center, just as Steph experienced that with the Washington Air Route Traffic Control Center. And so I thought, okay, well, you know, we'll do our best to get you there as quickly as we can. But, and if it opens, then we'll get whatever kind of shortcut that we can. And not long after we had taken off, uh, they, they mentioned that the Memphis center was back open again. So we got basically much more of a direct reading to Atlanta and we were actually uh, a few minutes early arriving in Atlanta this morning. So everybody was happy. So, so I'm guessing there, there's no fallback, uh, for another center to remote, um, connect the radar heads into their, system so that they can control no their fallback is just send, send everyone around <laughs> but <laughs> I, I like you nick are thinking this doesn't sound right i mean yeah. don't they have like like a secondary facility that they could all move to and still do all the controlling you know uh, necessary? I, I um i i've just uh, thought i'll send some feedback into opposing bases and yeah we'll find, why don't we find, we'll find out what they out. say about that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I like yeah. that idea very much. Because yeah. it's, it, it's, it's like it's what the modern air traffic control system is supposed to do, isn't it? You've got lots of redundancy. You can you can look at the picture from different radar heads, and if a radar head falls over, you can substitute that picture from the image from another radar head. I mean, isn't that what we're supposed to be heading towards so that there's no need to close bits of airspace? That, yeah. You would think. Yeah. Okay. All right. So shall I continue with my, my trip? Let's yes, see. We, it was just a uh, kind of a long day. The first day, not bad um, to Tulsa and then back and then up to um, Milwaukee, Wisconsin and a nice hotel. They have us in now called the Fister, the P F I S T E R an old uh, historic property there in the downtown area. Very nice. And then the next day up early um, back to Atlanta and then in, in back to Tulsa and so we arrived before noon, and uh, the day before, I sent a um, quick uh, text to um, a, a gentleman that uh, you may be familiar with, at least you've heard of him. Uh, the geezer, Larry Gregory, sends us in a lot of feedback. Almost every show, we have some kind of feedback from Larry, it seems. And so I said, hey, guess where I am? And that was the first day. And he goes, you're not in Tulsa, are you? And I said, well, we're just kind of going through, but I'll be back tomorrow for um, our layover. And so we were able to uh, meet up um, for a bit. Uh, he had some meetings at the airport, but I had to go you know, to the hotel. And so he drove from the airport to the hotel, which is not very far. And uh, he had a nice root beer and I had a nice IPA. Well, I think we talk about it in this little audio clip that we recorded while we were sitting in the uh, at the uh, restaurant in the hotel in Tulsa. So let me just play that for us right now. All right, so I'm in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So when, no, listeners, when you hear Tulsa, Oklahoma, I mean, what comes to mind? I guess besides oil, right? It's an oil town. Uh, but what comes to mind to me is this gentleman that I'm sitting right next to. Uh, he calls himself Geezer or The Geezer. It's Larry Gregory. Hey, hello, APG community. Yes, this is the geezer. 
And I, I admitted to Jeff, I did turn 78 this year, so I guess I can earn the title. But we're just pleased to see Jeff just happen to pop in town, which I guess answered the question many of you might have. Hey, is he flying yet? Well, he's doing it. This is twice in a, twice in a row. You are here yesterday. I, I think I saw your plane. I was out by the control tower, and uh, we saw some of the uh, military jets going by. So welcome back. You don't, you don't really have evidence, though. I mean, you were in the terminal, in the window, looking out and seeing if I was actually in the cockpit. I mean, who knows? I might just be pretending to do this stuff, and maybe I'm just non-revving, you know, from here to there. That's right, because today when the flight came in, I, th- I think it was the other Jeff on the radios. I never did hear your voice, but you're here, and it's a beautiful day. Boy, did you bring good weather or what? So, or what? Well, <laughs> It was, I guess, some weather a weather system had come through earlier today, and uh, we had to. It kind of kept going east uh, between Atlanta and here, and not too far east of here, and so we had to kind of pick our way through a little bit of a weather system. I'm thinking, wait a minute, it's November, and we're not supposed to have thunderstorm type weather, you know? But it wasn't bad. No, we we tried to move it out for you to get here, and uh, we were talking earlier. There's a couple of things that uh, you set a record. Uh, and I set a record, I found out. Uh, first of all, you landed on a runway. You're probably one of the first commercial jets to land on that runway and maybe since March uh, because the east-west runway has been closed because Americans had like 57 of their huge airplanes sitting on it, and they just got those moved, moved out of the way enough to land on it. And then uh, that's the, your record. Uh, my record is in talking and maybe I'll get to this later, but apparently I've flown more hours than you have this year. Since, since what, May? Yeah. Since, since the end of May, which is when I basically stopped flying the, uh, the Mad Dog. And now I don't know how many hours. I don't, well, I just flew a trip last week, which I don't know how many hours I got. A little over five hours or something like that. So, but Yeah, and that kind of gave away my surprise, and I was going to... I was going to record this and send it in as feedback, but this is easier than me get my computer working. Uh, I had not flown for 10 or 12 years. Uh, I went through a period of uh, uh, eye problems. I had cataract surgery and then just didn't quite get back in the groove until earlier this year when a lovely young lady from our church was talking with me and sort of encouraged me to get back to flying. And the deal was if I got my license back, I'd take her flying, and she was excited about that. So... That gave me something to look forward to, and so I did the Med Express. If you're if you're wondering if a 78 year old can get medically certified, I went through that. I did. Uh, got checked out in Cessna 172s, and you know it's been 10 or 12 years, but boy, the GPS systems and the autopilots, I mean, make it almost as easy for me to fly as Jeff does. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah, so it's it's funny how women will make you do things like get requalified on a on an airplane. Well, it was it was an inspiration, and and I think there was a higher power involved in this, and uh, I, I appreciate it. Uh, but anyway, I'm now I, we're talking earlier. Uh, I'm actually using my flight for business. Yes, I did retire, and it lasted two weeks, and I've got my own company now, and I fly to various places and do inspections on power lines and electrical utility substations and it's so much fun to get in an airplane and fly for an hour and 18 minutes 
than to drive for four and a half hours and then turn around and drive another four and a half hours back. That makes a full day. So, yes, airplanes are good utility tools. Good excuse for, for getting that license uh, or requalified or whatever. I, I have to say, you know, you said something about me setting a record first commercial carrier landing on that runway 26 in quite some time uh, i think that right after i landed on it they had to reclose it and it'll be out of probably for another seven or eight months because it was kind of a firm landing well let's talk about that i actually uh <clears throat> recorded the landing i was not on the airfield i was had a meeting so i couldn't get on the airfield right then but i did get a pretty good video of you landing and if i can upload that we'll have to send it but the interesting thing about the video is about the time you touch down, apparently behind me somebody emptied a dumpster, and there's a huge crash, and I wasn't sure if that was the noise of the dumpster or you touching down. Probably both. <laughs> both. But no, no, we're having a great time, and uh, I know that uh, you love a- IPAs, and so you've got a, what, what brand was it? I, I'm not sure, but I think it's out of Oklahoma City, and, uh, but it's a really good IPA. Well, and on <clears throat> to honor the occasion, I'm having a genuine Hanks Gourmet Philadelphia recipe root beer, and it's delicious. I don't know where it's come from, but it's good. We're thinking probably Philadelphia, but all the bottle says it's a Philadelphia recipe, and it's a product of the USA. So that's as close as we can get. For all we know, it might be in Texas. Who knows? But, but having a great time. I appreciate this. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm having a blast. Um, in the restaurant, in the hotel lobby, Hyatt Regency, downtown Tulsa. I love Tulsa. It's a great town. Um, but it's always great to get together with Larry Gregory. I guess the last time that we met up was over at uh, Albert G's uh, Barbecue. That was great. And uh, always great to see you, Larry. Okay. Well, I appreciate it. We'll have to plan, now that you're back back in the saddle, we'll have to do another real meetup and coordinate it. So pleasure meeting with you. I appreciate it. And uh, to the rest of the crew, good day. Good day. Back to you, Jeff. (laughs) But here, I'll I'll let you do it. Throw it at me back in the studio. Good day. And now back to you in the studio, Jeff. Thank you, Larry. (laughs) Good day. Very professional. Uh, He's a great guy. Um, That runway, 26, uh, that's the first time I've actually landed on that runway. Usually they have parallel runways, uh, north-south runways. And I guess that the winds get really, really strong out of the west because that funnel system had just gone through. And there were some pretty pretty high winds actually uh, coming in. And I learned something about the mini dog. Uh, they um, routinely, you leave the auto throttles on even all the way through you know throttle retardation and touchdown which is not something that we did on the mad dog fleet. And um, it really has no way of knowing that you're flying into like a 30 knot wind headwind. (laughs) And so it just pulls the power back like around 30 feet, I think. And had I been thinking about that, I may have just turned off the auto throttle system and, you know, left the power on a little bit longer, or maybe even kind of like held my hand there and not let it retard uh, as quickly as it normally does. But I didn't think that through. And so it basically dropped out of the sky and it was a firm touchdown. And uh, as uh, Larry said, <laughs> found, found that pavement. Did you? <laughs> yeah, I did. And uh, the, the first officer, Jeff, um, said, you know what? 
that's not even in my top 10 of my of bad landings that I've experienced. So I thought, oh, thank you for making me feel better. He is a nice gentleman. Yes. <laughs> Very nice yes. guy. Gentleman. Um, anyway, great seeing Larry. Uh, by the way, um, thank you, Liz, for including this. I said, remind me to give a shout out to somebody. Now, I, I'm hoping that this person is listening because I don't know who this person is. As I was standing at the door, uh, uh, what am I saying? Greeting? Deplaning. No, Deplaning. When the people are deplaning, I'm not greeting them. I'm saying goodbye. Whatever. Whatever the opposite Kicking of greeting is. Booting them off. Booting them off. Booting them off. Um, and I'm standing there and this guy, uh, and everybody has face masks on, so I, you know, I can't really recognize anybody anyway. Hopefully this person I didn't know. But they were holding up their phone, and on the phone was a podcast app, and guess what podcast logo was on his <laughs> really? phone, and he, and he and didn't even stop. He just kind of kept walking. And he was then, just like, hey. And he, <laughs> and he said, like, something, I think he said, like, flying with authority or something like that, and, and I'm looking at my, you know, little logo, and, and he just walks off the airplane. I'm thinking, well, maybe he's just going to walk off and then stay there, and then I can you know, try to find him and, and have a little conversation, but nope, he was, he was gone. So whoever you are, you know who you are, uh, send us some feedback and, and let it, you know, let us know who you are. And, uh, was that in Tulsa, Jeff? Uh, That was in Tulsa. Tulsa, Yeah. Yeah. Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, on Tuesday, the 10th of November. So anyway, I just thought that was, uh, and it was funny because the flight attendant standing up there in the galley, she just looks at me like, what, what was that? <laughs> I'll explain it in a minute, <laughs> but you know, it's just like, I, what did he say? And what was he, what did he have on his phone? And yeah. So anyway, Excellent. it was fun. So, so what did you tell her? You yeah, I was say, what was the explanation? What? Oh, I, I just said, what? you know, I just do this little <laughs> podcast with some other, to edit that. pardon me. <laughs> What'd you, you say? You're going to have to edit that. What'd you you'll, say? You'll hear it later on. No, you can't say it again. See, it's interesting. I, I don't always hear what you guys are saying really? until. I heard that loud and clear. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I, I need to turn the volume up then a little bit more on your, what you're sending me. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, it's interesting because sometimes I'll, it, during the editing process, I go, oh, that's what they were saying. And then sometimes my response to whatever it is you said isn't always correct or appropriate. It's just like or, Captain Jerry ah, in the okay. leg. Gotcha. Yeah, exactly. Captain Jerry uh, had that problem in the last show with the, the <laughs> latency. Latency. <laughs> latency issue. <laughs> okay. So I can't wait to hear what Captain Nick I'm just said. I'm excited for you to listen back to that because <laughs> I think you're going to laugh a lot. Okay. Anyway. Well, should I say thank you, Captain Nick, or should no, I say no? no. no. Definitely not. <laughs> say thank you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is going to be interesting. All right. All right. So that was a it was a great trip, um, and I got home this morning with just one leg back from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I'll go back out again on Monday of next week, and um, hopefully, um, somebody that I know in Charlotte will. I don't know what her schedule is like, but uh, hopefully we'll she'll be able to fit in some time to uh, meet up with me for a, for a beer mm. or something. Um, yeah, we'll have to see about that. Yeah. Oh, you're. I was talking about somebody else. Are you interested oh. in doing that stuff? I mean, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> all right, and that's about all I have uh, to say. 
regarding what I've been up to this uh, past week. Uh, Captain Nick, how about yourself, sir? Uh, no, no, I mean, really, I'm, I'm very glad there's a green screen only a, a foot or two behind me because the rest of this studio is just stuff full of furniture because we've got the builders in and uh, we're fitting a new fireplace. So mm. the lounge where Jilly normally relaxes of an evening while I'm doing the show uh, is uh, unavailable right now. Most of the furniture from there is in here. So uh, Jilly has gone to bed early because mm-hmm. she didn't know where or what else to do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, but I'm very glad that I've got this little studio because it would look a real mess behind me otherwise. So that's brilliant. Um, other than that, no, just busy getting the plane tails out and, um, you know, uh, life is carrying on as normal. Um, doing a lot of dog walking because Jilly is the decorator in our house. She is the one that does all the slog. And I just, uh, you know, tried to stay out of her way because I'm useless at that. And you're mostly successful at that, right? <laughs> yes, mostly. <pretty> good. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you're watching the video, you'll notice that uh, behind uh, Nick is uh, a field of poppies, red, beautiful red poppies. And you'll understand the significance of that um, when we hear our plain tale today. Uh, I have the uh, American flag and the Statue of Liberty and some soldiers. Um, behind me on my green screen and that is because around the world uh, it's remembrance day or here in the u.s veterans day and uh, so um, both nick and i served um, in our armed forces me just the u.s air force but nick both the royal air force and the royal australian air force and uh, and to everybody out there listening to the show uh, if you're a veteran or currently serving uh, our salute to you for your service to the to your country absolutely thank you very much and thank you captain jeff and captain nick it was our pleasure you're welcome uh it's it's quite a a thing in this country uh, because um on the sunday we have a big uh the sunday before we have a big uh remembrance um event in the uh, albert hall and um that is, you know, it's just a tradition. My family have always, always, always watched it. And uh, it's very poignant towards the end because uh, they usually have the whole arena full of uh, servicemen and women from every branch of the military. And uh, they have a drum head uh, service. So they assemble drums and flags as they would do on a battlefield if they were holding a religious mm. service. And they say prayers. And then during the prayers, um, poppies fall, poppy petals fall mm. from the ceiling, uh, one representing each deceased soldier from the First World War, and they just rain down and form a carpet of red in the whole arena and settling on the shoulders and the hats of the service people that are there. It's very, very, it's a real you know, emotional moment when you, you, know, you realise that each one of these represents a uh, fallen uh, soldier or whatever. So that's very good. And then today on the 11th, the 11th, uh, at 11 o'clock, there's a two-minute silence and uh, anyone that uh, can will uh, stop and uh, whatever they're doing and uh, just spend those two minutes uh, honouring the fallen. And we usually have a huge march past of the Cenotaph, uh, which is the big memorial in London. And uh, 
servicemen, uh, veterans, you know, they, they take hours to march past. Uh, and the Queen's there, and there's, there's all the dignitaries in the country, lay uh, their wreaths. Um, and uh, today, of course, they weren't allowed to do most of that, and they held a, a very abbreviated service in uh, Westminster Abbey, um, which is where all the kings and queens, uh, amongst others, uh, of England are buried. But uh, there in the middle, of course, is the grave of the unknown soldier. And uh, it's right in the middle of the aisle, and it's the only gravestone that's embedded in the floor there that you're not allowed to walk on. And, uh, you know, the, the story of that, of course, is probably well known, how they chose that soldier, and what a marvellous, uh, um, dignified process they had bringing the body from France to uh, London to lay in the to rest there. So it's it's a very emotional and poignant time of the year for us here. You know, listening to you describe all of that, I'm thinking to myself, it sounds much more like what we celebrate here in the United States um, the last weekend in May, the, uh, Memorial Day. We should, Steph, we should probably switch them around, right? We should do Veterans Day on that day and do Memorial Day when everybody else is doing um, Remembrance Day. Yeah, you yep. need to have a word with the president. Yeah, we'll need to. We'll need to talk to I, some people. Sure, but yeah. So the we thing is, that Liz and I were talking uh, before we started the recording that here in the United States, uh, a lot of people kind of confuse the two holidays: Memorial Day and Veterans Day. Memorial Day is that commemoration of those who have died for their country, you know, fighting sure. in wars. Whereas Veterans Day really isn't. It's just uh, honoring those who have served. And have you know who are no longer anyone with us? Served, yeah. Anybody, you know, I, I'm a veteran, so it's kind of my day. Uh, and yeah. anybody else who has served, so interesting. I, hmm. Anyway, I guess we'll have but to. You're right. There is confusion about that quite often. Well, I I don't think it matters, and I actually think the more that we bring our minds to uh, remember those who uh, made the ultimate sacrifice, which is just one of those cliches that, uh, who died in the service to their country is i think probably a better way of putting it no matter when it happened so long as everyone takes a moment to think about that and the loss uh, it kind of brings your life back into perspective when you realize how many other lives had to be given uh, so that we enjoy the freedoms we do that is so true all right well said sir well said well I think now would be a good time for us to talk about the way that you can contribute to the show in a financial way. And we call that the coffee fund. And let me see. Here we go. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Oh, yeah. Well, that's the Jeff Smith singing the APG Java Jive, which is the Coffee Fund official song. Hey, um, Liz, would you put up the um, overlay with our Coffee Fund folks? Thank you so much. 
A couple different ways to contribute or be part of our coffee fund. Uh, The first is the coffee fund classic method, the original. And since our last episode, we have four folks who have contributed via that mechanism. And those are Mazuts Karim, George Leslie, Richard Adams, and Florian Zahn. And uh, the other way that you can be part of our coffee fund cadre is via patreon you can become a patron of the show and pledge a certain amount per episode and since the last episode you know we haven't had a lot of time between the episodes here we don't have any new patrons but that's okay we got a bunch of them out there who uh give us their hard-earned money for every single episode so we do appreciate you patrons and anybody out there contributing to our show and if you're interested in Joining this great group of folks, head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did. So will we. Captain, incoming message. Uh, Speaking of veterans, um, we have our first piece of feedback from Texas Anlashock. And he says, if you remember last Christmas, I shared a video from the Mormon Tabernacle Choir telling the story of the candy bomber, Colonel Gail Hal Halverson, culminating in an appearance by the man himself, at the time, 92 years of age. I had expressed surprise when I discovered that he was still around, and as of today, October 10th, 2020, he has officially reached the centennial mark, one hundred years old if you're watching the uh, video uh, episode you'll see a picture of uh, hal right there and he's looking awfully good for 100 years old that's for sure absolutely you know they're mm-hmm. saying the good die young it's not true because uh, yeah. this is some hell of a guy yeah um let's see in the christmas video he was still quite sprightly and going by the picture in this new story he still seems that way happy 100th colonel halverson glad you're still with us and he ends by saying this is the texas and lashock signing off excellent nice picture too isn't it great yeah oh yeah love that uh colonel flight cap yeah Mm -hmm. i did a story all about uh uh the Orosian Bomber, I think I called it, all about the um, uh, the candy bomber. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a great story. Great plain tale. Yeah. Check them out, by the way. If uh, you're new to the show, um, I don't, have you counted, Nick, how many you've done? It's got to be a couple hundred. 30 to 40, somewhere wow. around there. Yeah, and there's a separate section on our website, um, Plain Tales, um, very aptly named where uh, Nick uh, has put in more information about each one of these plain tales that he does every week. So please check that out. You can also sign up uh, for the plain tale feed and you don't have to listen to any of this other nonsense that we do every week. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's handy if you just want to go back and find one without having to hunt through all the, uh, the shows to dig it out. True, true, true. And so many times I hear, I'll hear a story. I'm thinking, why does that sound familiar to me? And then I realized, oh, I know why. Captain Nick has covered it in one of his plane tales. Yeah. Going to run out one day. Nah, I don't think he ever will, actually. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, continuing on. Um, this is from E.B. 
and then he he signed his name eb and then uh hashtag team op- opposing bases <laughs> they're getting kind of <laughs> hostile out there you know that Re- right yeah. i mean i think some additional feedback from nick is necessary to <laughs> yeah yeah, that uh, that is a folks. bit uh, of a confrontation coming on there. It is. Yeah. Very, very confrontational. So I, I put in parentheses, his actual name is Evan. <laughs> yes. Uh-oh. I always remind outed. people, you know what? Here oh, on our show, we use, we use real names. <laughs> yes. Or mostly real names. Or mostly, yeah. I actually, yeah, like Texas and LaShock, that's not his real name. <laughs> not a real name. <laughs> I don't think it is, anyway. Anyway, so uh, (laughs) Evan writes in uh, on episode 446, you got corrected about there being no more operating 727 aircraft. Well, I actually corrected myself and said in the U.S. there are no, you know, big cargo outfits using them. But anyway, wasn't I I hit the almost 50 percent mark on that one. Anyway, another listener correctly brought up that there is an operating 727 being used in the U.S. for equine equine transportation. Is that right? Equine. And uh, they call it Air Horse One. Um, It's uh, operated by Tex Sutton Equine Equine Air Transportation. What did you say, Steph? I didn't. Oh, (laughs) you refused to put yourself (laughs) out there. Okay. Uh, Based out of, that's very smart, by the way. Uh, Based Um, out of. It's an ugly picture there, but the overwing exits, how do you get a horse through one of those? (laughs) Very. Yeah, you got a really you squeeze a large, it <laughs> It's hard to see, but there is a large cargo door there on the side. Yeah, uh, no, that, that's how you do it right there. There's another picture of uh, a horse uh, who has just squeezed itself through one of those overwing exits. No, no, it came out of the engine. It came out of that engine. Oh, it's came a little snug of the engine. That's what that hole is there for. And we're just right? hitting the 50% mark all over the place <laughs> yeah. on this. No, we're not. <laughs> no. We're really suffering today. <gasps> Anyway, uh, so we have a couple of pictures that we'll put in the show notes of the uh, beautiful 727 uh, that they are using for uh, horse transport, Air Horse One, I think the nickname, based out of Lexington, uh, KLEX, Bluegrass Airport in Lexington, Kentucky. And uh, EB says, I got my private certificate at LEX and have often seen Air Force One on the ramp next to the Kentucky Aviation Museum. Worth a stop if you're in the area. Hope this keeps you above 50%. Well, you and me both, Evan. So I think I thought I had mentioned when we were talking about this before that um, Kalita, the Kalita charters had something to do with operation. Yep, they're the ones that operate as well, and they they operate it. Yes. Yep, you're right. Kentucky is full of horses, yeah? Yeah, it's horse country. Okay. Kentucky Derby? Yeah, Kentucky Derby. And uh, that's a hat, isn't it? A Derby? Yep. And lots of uh, okay. mint juleps. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Those hats. No, those are drinks and horses. <laughs> yes. What you've just summed up in bluegrass, probably. <laughs> okay. Okay. I can't think of anything. We're gonna get so better. much <laughs> mail from the fine folks who live in Kentucky. I'm, I'm sure Greg hat. Peterson would like the fat, mm-hmm. fat ass. That's right. Fans. Greg Peterson. Uh, Liz is reminding us. Um, it lives in that. Wonderful town, Lexington. So it's Kentucky. known of known of for fans too. So. Yeah, he's known for his uh, very large donkey fans. Oh, I wonder if that is in conflict with the uh, horses. Mm. Well, donkeys are sort of related to horses, right? Yeah, kind of yeah. crossbreed, well, kind of. Mm, yeah, no? yeah. Ish. Well, they kind of look similar. I don't know. Yeah. Now we're really getting in trouble, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. We should not stray into <laughs> moving along. Okay, moving along. Genetics of uh, the equine <laughs> breeds. Yeah. I mean, we hardly. 
we hardly know anything about aviation, and now we're really the donkey is the Equus africanus. Oh, um, thank you. I'm not going to pronounce that last <laughs> word because it's going to sound incorrect and <laughs> offensive. Equus uh, africanus. A sinus. A sinus. Right, where are you getting this? Are you looking that up on the uh, the Book Wikipedia. of Knowledge? Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> so it is a domesticated the member of the, the horse family. Kelly Kirk in the chat room says, imagine the smell in that plane. <laughs> I'd rather not. Thank you. If they're, um, if they're expensive racehorses, I'd assume they'd be smelling of roses. Mm. Probably perfume. Assume. Very nice. Yeah. Let's move on, shall we? Um, oh, we have another installment of uh, Dana's. Um, oop, sorry. <laughs> Did you hear that? My computer. I did. My, yeah. I, I accidentally hit one of my keys. <laughs> the computer's the computer goes, I don't, what? What, what are you doing? Um, anyway, Dana went through 737 training back in August, September-ish, I think. And he recorded some audio regarding how all that went. And this particular installment is number four. And without further ado... Take it away, Dana. Well, hello there, APG community and Captain Jeff, Dr. Steph, Nick, and Rick. It's Dana, and guess what? We're on our next segment here, on our fourth segment on what it was like going through training for me. And uh, this one's kind of like the Twilight Zone. Do, 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 do. I don't know if you've ever seen that show, but, you know, we kind of get into a little more of the meat of what we need to learn, and that is we're starting to do all the um, low visibility approaches. We're starting to get into right down to minimums, Cat 1 minimum approaches. Um, we're doing single engine work. We're doing, in, of course, single engine work. It can't be clearing a million outside. It has to be right down to minimums as well uh, this aircraft uh you can use the autopilot all the way down however auto throttles uh-uh you can't use the auto throttles uh on a single engine uh type of a scenario which on the mad dog you could until you intercepted the glide slope um this airplane it, the autopilot will go ahead and uh, you know fly the autopilot all the way down uh but you don't have the auto throttles, which is really no big deal, um, as long as you're on top of your your uh, uh, energy management. And uh, you know, the nice thing about this airplane, it also has the flat plate dis uh, flat plate uh, displays, which shows the trend vector. So, in other words, there's a, a green um, um, little line that comes out and shows you where in the next ten seconds your your power your your speed's going to be based on your current power setting. So it kind of gives you a heads up. Um, so we did uh, loads of visibility approaches, uh, all of them to mist, except for one to a landing. Uh, unreliable airspeed. That's always a fun one. Pretty much you have to set a pitch attitude based on your N1 setting um, and, uh, you know, run the procedures. And usually you can recover some part of your, your uh, system. This is... Uh, um, part of, if I remember correctly, uh, the whole entire series, uh, um, Nick did a great job on the Air France uh, situation. That's uh, kind of where this procedure came from. Um, 
you know, and then we have V1 cuts. So what is a V1 cut? That is right at, when you say V1, rotate, the engine fails. And so that's the most critical time. I would argue it's probably the second most critical time uh, that the engine can fail. Um, and that is, you know, controlling the aircraft, uh, just as you uh, just as you rotate and making sure you keep the heading of the aircraft uh, you know relative to the uh, to the center line of the of the runway um, and a uh, little difference here between the 88 and 90 88 would always hold when the nose came off the runway it would hold the heading uh, this aircraft that's not the case it's a wing leveler so um, you have to be really on top of it but still not a major issue on this aircraft uh, my argument would be that if you're just uh, taking off and you just take off the runway and you're just starting to climb out and you lose an engine right there i think that is actually probably more critical time to lose an engine because you don't have any friction on the ground to help you stabilize the aircraft you got to be right on top of it um and put that uh, uh put that uh, rudder in and more cases than not you don't lose your engine right at v1 usually it's just after takeoff so anyways um Interesting enough, uh, interesting day there, uh, engine failure. Uh, so it's all, as you can see, it's all engine uh, failure, uh, all types of uh, uh, single engine approaches, engine fire, run through the checklist there. And uh, then we have a passenger evacuation, which is actually, uh, a, it seems like it would be a real heavy, fast, you know, oh my God, you know, get the adrenaline pumping, get, get everybody off the aircraft. But we have a checklist for it. And the, the hard part is to really just stay into the checklist and follow the checklist all the way through to the end. So that was kind of my uh, fourth lesson there uh, in, in summation. And we did all of our work out of the wonderful city of Seattle. Um, so I uh, got three wonderful runways there to choose from. And of course, one that's 11,500 11, feet long, I think it is. So we had no issues uh, with uh, doing any of our work there. Um and so we move on to my pre-check ride uh, simulator. So my pre-check ride, so I uh, maneuvers validation, it's called. Um, we did a lot of uh, miscellaneous abnormals, kind of uh, getting me ready for what I could see on the check ride, and there are different uh, scenarios that you could have on the check ride. Um, so we have uh, uh, flap abnormals. So. Basically, in any position that you put your flaps, they could fail. You could fail up completely or a failing position, or you can end up with a split flap, which means that one wing over the other wing has, you know, a little bit more of a degree flap uh, flap uh, uh, input. So let's say one wing happens to have 10 degrees flaps, and the other one stops at 7 degrees. So you have, you know, you have an asymmetric flap, flap situation out there. So you need to know how to deal with that. Um, pretty much the rest of it was all review from everything that I've done the rest of the, the week, um, to make sure that I was ready for my check ride. And, uh, so we had, uh, again, some engine out, engine out situations, wind shear, um, and then low visibility taxing as well. And the big, big thing today was the the uh, flap non-normals, which I actually did have a flap non-normal in my check ride, which I'll get to uh, when I talk about that. Uh, let's see what else. Yeah, pretty much it on uh, the the prep. Everything went very well, and then we come into my check ride. The check ride itself um, was. Uh, 
pretty, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not really thinking it was too difficult. Um, it was, uh, it was challenging, but again, you know, they've done, you know, I got to compliment the, the, uh, training department at Acme Airlines. They have done a fantastic job, uh, with this program to make it more or less like a gentleman's program. So when I went to, to the, um, check ride. Now, of course, this last day was in Atlanta, which I'm very familiar with. So it felt really comfortable. Then I'm dealing with all these issues. So, you know, they just kind of really designed this program in in a way to try to help you uh, succeed. And, you know, as long as you go in with a good attitude and, and honestly, you know, everybody may think that I didn't. I, I Try to go in with a good attitude because, listen, it's not the, the guys across the table that are teaching me that, you know, has caused any issues in my in my career. It's, it's, it's you know, other factors, which I'm not going to talk about in any shape or form other than uh, I really did truly in, enjoy the training program. So by the time I got to my check ride, I felt as though it was, you know, just it was just an easy check ride. Um with challenges, of course, um, you know, you have to perform the procedures uh, to the best of your ability, and hopefully you don't make too many mistakes. Everybody, everybody makes a mistake. Um, even the best pilots out there are going to make a mistake. There's no such thing as a perfect check ride. There are, uh, you know, per, near-perfect check rides where, you know, you make a few mistakes, but what they're looking for is your capability to make decisions, be able to fly the aircraft, um, and be uh, at least competent and stay within within normal parameters of what you're uh, expected to uh, be able to do for ATP minimums. So, and as long as you're correcting them, even if you, you know, let's say you have an altitude deviation of 100 feet, um, you know, as long as you're correcting back. And now I didn't have that issue, but as long as you're correcting back, uh, then it becomes kind of a, a non a non issue. Um, let's see. I only have a couple minutes left. So, you know what? I've talked quite a bit today. I'm going to cut it a little short, uh, only because I don't want to get into the check ride and uh, kind of rush through it. So in the meantime, I'm going to say, well, back to you, Jeff in the studio. We'll talk to you and see you guys soon. Bye-bye. Thank you, Dana. Always interesting to hear your experience and training and also the comparisons. Comparison. Between the 737 and the Mad Dog Fleet. I hear Jeff echoing. I do too. And I do too. Why do I hear that? Do, I? do you have a speaker on? Hello? 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 No? I'm hearing huh. it. Where am I hearing that? Sorry. That was my mic. Oh. Oh. It was Nick's <laughs> fault. Well, I'm, I'm just happy to know it wasn't me. Um. Not a problem. We'll edit it in post. Or not. Or not. Maybe not. Probably not. <laughs> I'm not saying the word anymore. That'll teach me for unmuting myself. <laughs> we want you to unmute yourself, Nick. We always we hang on every word. <laughs> speaking of that, thank you, uh, Dana. We were hanging on every word. Of your training. Absolutely. Good stuff. And Very we can't wait to hear about the check ride. Uh, that'll be the next installment. Excellent. Yeah. All right. Um, this 
is an interesting one. We have some photos to go along with it, but not quite yet. Uh, just whenever you think it's appropriate, Liz. Um, this was sent in from Andrew, and this is from realestate.com.au. And an old airport control tower is now available as a house for sale in New Zealand. And there's a picture of that uh, house, which looks just like a control tower, because that's what it was. Many Australians haven't had many chances to go anywhere near an airport since our borders were closed due to the COVID-19 pandemic. But now, a unique opportunity has hit the market in New Zealand that is offering everything a keen traveler could want in a property. It is situated close to an airport, has great views of the harbor, and a long, interesting history. There is just one minor drawback. Instead of a house, the property is the former Wellington Air Traffic Control Tower. Is that well, a drawback? I don't know. I mean, to maybe some people that are like normal people, probably, but not people mm. like us or okay. aviation geeks. <laughs> not a problem at all. Not a problem. It's other people's problems. Um, let's see. Flights in and out of Wellington have controlled have controlled from Ben Control. I think there's a missing word from the building for nearly sixty years. When it was first opened in 1959 until it was decommissioned in 2018, it's believed to be the only air traffic control tower in the world with a residential address and its own letterbox, according to Stuff, S-T-U-F-F. -F. The grand old lady of Wellington, as she is commonly known, is positioned among the houses in the hills on the western side of the airport. According to uh, the marketing material, the site offers a blank canvas opportunity, <laughs> typical real estate term. It's a blank canvas opportunity. Also near major shopping center yeah. and convenient to... <laughs> <laughs> to elementary schools. Okay, yes. Um, good, good school district. Good schools, yes. Um, with some TLC, this could be your mm -hmm. mansion. Mm -hmm. uh, sitting on 940 square meters, split over two titles. I guess that means it's on two separate like pieces of plots or property. Yeah. Okay. With it... Quote, positioned for unbelievable sun from morning till evening. The block of land could actually be any surfer's dream spot, with the site located only a 10-minute walk to the local Lyle Bay Surf Beach. See, there's the other draw. Yeah. Looks like a pretty nice place, actually. Yeah. Um, there is hope that the old tower could be given new life as an out-of-the-box abode by a thoughtful, creative architect. But that may not be the case. Uh, Airways Chief Financial Officer James Young told Stuff.co.New Zealand, or NZ, NZ, the most likely scenario was that it would be bought by a developer and cleared to build new homes. Ah, uh, boo. No, sad. don't do that. That's no good. Isn't Glenn Towler in Wellington? He should have bought it. I think, yeah, yeah. Um, Liz is asking the question, and I was just thinking the same thing when I kept reading the, the name of the uh, area Wellington. I, I do believe that is where Glenn Towler, our good mm -hmm. APG um, and aviation podcast listener and celebrity, uh, especially when it comes to... Uh, At Oshkosh. Oshkosh, yeah. He's a major Mr. Oshkosh. Oshkosh celebrity. Um, yes, I believe he's from Wellington, New Zealand. Mm -hmm. He could probably tell us about this. Place. Maybe. Uh, hey, Glenn. Hey. Check this Are out. Are you looking for a new house? Yeah. <laughs> Actually, can you just, you know, buy it on behalf of all of us? And then yeah. we can make it the APG. Come and party there. 
Absolutely. Party house. And make rude comments about people's landing. <laughs> well, what else would you do from a control tower? <laughs> so I guess I'm looking at the picture that Liz has up uh, right now in the on the video. Uh, that must is the other tower that I'm looking at over the out over the water. Is that the new control tower? Maybe. I don't know. Huh. Maybe. Well, it that's looks what like I'm wondering. Whoa. Something was Ceiling dropped. falling down. Yeah, something was dropped on Guy the floor of the uh, uh, upstairs studio. Um, Although it doesn't seem very well positioned because no. the, if you were a ground controller, there must be plenty of tarmac that's um, hard to see from mm -hmm. that other tower. Plus, that this tower looks like it's higher up than the other one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's just yeah. the camera angle or something. But it has got great views. It Although does. I suspect it's probably not in the best of conditions. Well, according to Billy Bell and Jess Platt of Tommy's Real Estate, uh, it's the most unique property they had ever listed. Is it possible to have something mo more unique than anything else? I no. don't know. No, it's don't think not. So. Uh, we've had unusual looking houses, but never anything quite like this. So it's exciting to be involved. So check out the photos of the Wellington, the old Wellington control tower. Um, that'll be in the show notes. I'm looking at the piece of the plot of land it's on. It's not particularly big, and it's not mm -mm. flat either. So how the hell they'll build a whole bunch of houses on that, I do not know. I don't think they uh, could fit maybe two houses in that on that though land. The yeah. land around where I live is not particularly flat, and they build houses on it all the time. Oh, that is true. Uh, okay. That is true. All right. Uh, continuing on with um, Matt. Hello, crew, and welcome back after your brief hiatus. Matt from Chapel Hill. You can get treatment for a hiatus, can't you? I think so. And a low hiatus. Speaking yeah, of low. Well, hiatus hernia. Yeah. I have a high, low <laughs> beer that I'm drinking. Session. Oh, IPA. very good. Um, That's one of those woofy fruit flavored beers, isn't it? It's not fruit. It's. I think you would like this one, Nick, to be honest. Why? The... Is that like taste of beer? <sighs> anyway. Yes. Beer. <laughs> Matt. From Chapel Hill here. I'm sort of missing my occasional flybys with Captain Jeff in Cleveland, but not so much given that I left that job during COVID. And more of the better. As an update for me, I successfully completed my instrument rating with a check ride pass on October 14 while you were away. Hooray! All right, where is my applause? Here we go. Way to go, man. Matt, you demand. You demand. All right. Uh, as someone close enough to Captain Jeff's generational demographic, he's saying that I'm old. Uh, I certainly. <laughs> yeah, but Nick's older. Um, I certainly get the whole, quote, need time to process new things component and have no doubt Captain Jeff has done exactly that on the angry puppy. Yes, I have. Somehow I managed to make it through the program. So happy that you're back in the saddle, hoping all are safe and healthy and looking forward to continuing the connection. Matt McDonald in Chapel Hill. Yeah, I look forward. We uh, lay over, over um, in Chapel Hill still. So. RDU. Yep. yep, RDU and Chapel Hill and Durham and all that good stuff in that area. Beautiful part of the country. Just up the road. Yeah, not far at all I mean, from where Steffi lives. Okay. Um, Chopper Mike. He says, hey there, APG. 
finally getting caught up with the show after a not-so-brief hiatus and got to 442 with Dr. Steph and Miami Rick working through critical engine stuff and some of the aerodynamic forces associated. I couldn't help but correlate some of those to my helicopter life. <laughs> I think everything is always critical stuff going on in that, in that world. Helicopter, yeah, a, a lot of bet. moving parts. Yeah, lots of moving trying, parts. Yeah, yeah. And I thought I'd share my take on it. I'm sure there's a helicopter CFI that's listening who will want to murder my soul after watching, but maybe not. All my best. Chopper Mike. Was there something that he... Was there a link? Or like a, there's something that I'm you, missing here. No, I, 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 I thought so too, but I couldn't find any. Oh. There wasn't anything sent in. Hmm. Okay. Uh, Mike, Liz is saying she thought so too, but she didn't see anything that was sent in with this. Um, and the, the subject line is gyros, X to the factor of P and nerd speak. So I'm wondering if maybe he meant to put in a link to some audio x or? to the factor of p. let me check I think he might have i even think he missed it or something anyway yeah let me see if i can find um the actual i'm looking in my email updates are available like to download no 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 <laughs> don't, don't it's not a good time to update stuff don't do it resist would you like to back up your entire computer right now no. <laughs> would you like to back up your computer no Okay, wait a minute. Let's see. Uh, chopper. Mike, let's see if that. My first feedback. No, don't no. put Chopper Mike into Google. You know what you're going to no, end up no, with. No, yeah, <laughs> I do now. You, you've enlightened me with the, uh, the British slang of that word. Um, yep. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that would not be something. I conveniently had already work. forgotten that, but thank you for reminding me again. <laughs> Okay, I'm looking, at the, I'm, I'm looking at the original feedback um, email, and no, there's no link to anything. So I just, Why exactly he's like, helicopter pilot? He forgot to stick it uh, in. These guys, their their brains are getting racked around so much. <laughs> yeah, I know. They're rattling around inside their skulls. So, so Chopper Mike, um, if you're listening, uh, if you meant to send us a link to something, uh, send it to us, and we'll we'll do it on the future show. Yes, Mike, send us the link. <laughs> Well, the traffic on the F R L five. That's dumb. Sorry. <laughs> like WKRP. <laughs> WKRP in Cincinnati. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Uh, number seven. This is from Chris. Now he is a newer listener, and he says, "My story." Uh, hi, my name is Chris Styers, and I live in Southeast Michigan. I'm a newer listener and enjoy, and enjoy your podcast very much. I did listen to an episode a few years ago when this when the show was called Catholic Guy Pilot or something, or rather, <laughs> you know, Catholic, just Catholic Pilot. Uh, as a perpetual student pilot and Catholic, I was very interested. My interest into aviation started as a very young child. My mother ran a contract post office at the old Smith Terminal in Detroit, the building was built in, or DTW, so I guess the airport. The building, which was built in 1957, was recently demolished. My mother had known the two barbers that worked next to mom's counter. These two nice gentlemen offered my mother discounts on our haircuts. So, from about the age of five, I always got excited when it was time for a haircut because it meant going to the airport. There was an observation deck at the terminal. When my other two brothers were getting their haircuts, I would go spend time there. My mother got to know many people at the airport, including some pilots who frequented 
DTW. One day, while at my mother's counter with my younger brother and older sister, a captain from Northwest Airlines asked my mother if he could take us to his airplane. At age seven, this was the highlight of my life. To this day, I remember that visit on that Red Tail 727. Thirteen years later, I would begin my own airline career with Republic Airlines at the age of 19 in 1985. Starting off on the ramp, I couldn't be happier to be around airplanes. Although, the DC-9 did get a little tiring after a while. We did have a few 727s, so that broke up the monotony. I believe it was 1986 when Republic received its first 757. My real thrust into the aviation world began after Northwest Airlines bought Republic. I had an opportunity to leave the ramp and become a customer service agent. Shortly afterward, I was able to bid a position in the control center. Watching the ramp controller do their thing piqued my interest, and I was soon training on that position and loved it. It was concerning to me that there was no formal training for this position. I was trained on the job, which forces one to become acclimated very quickly. Having only a small familiarity of the aviation lexicon, I absorbed everything I could see and hear spending many hours listening to ATC ground control and tower to learn the phraseology. Who knew that a beam meant next to? Ha! If I had heard a term or phrase that I didn't know the meaning, I would do whatever it took to find out. Ramp control at DTW in the late 80s and 90s is about as challenging as it can get. After a few months, it became apparent that this airport was not designed for a a 400-flight-a-day operation. Somehow, we were able to force that square peg into the round hole every day, albeit with numerous multi-minute pushback delays, not to mention the 30 to 40 minute taxi times inbound. I talked to many frustrated first officers and captains who voiced their opinion of the mess daily. One day, during a heavy push and after being unloaded on by a captain, I began to share with my coworkers a very expletive-filled opinion about his remarks. Unbeknownst to me, I'd inadvertently locked the transmit button on my headset. So guess who came walking up the stairs about 20 minutes later? Thankfully, he got a good chuckle out of it. Ha, that was the last time I locked my transmit button. It wasn't worth the convenience to talk and type at the same time. Ugh, I love the chaos and challenge of that job very much. I was able to formulate a picture of every aircraft on the field, whether they landed on 2-1 right or 2-1 left. It wasn't easy. I was able to pick out a particular uh, nuance of aircraft or position. For instance, when a 757 transmitted on the radio, it had a particular sound to it. So when a 757 called, I knew right away who it was, and I could narrow down the flight number. I thrived on the nonstop chatter, which could last for 30 minutes or more. We were as busy as the ATC ground controller many times. What a blast. Of course, the worst day was August 16th, 1987. I hadn't been trained on ramp control yet, but was working the service radio. As I was sitting, talking on the radio, I heard someone scream. I stood up and turned around to see a fireball that literally filled the sky. We were all in disbelief. I convinced myself it had to be a general aviation aircraft, knowing the chances were about 97%. It was a red tail. My worst fears were confirmed when I got a call from a female first officer asking to return to the gate. She said they were number two at 2-1 Center. I asked her if she saw who just took off. Not wanting to start speculation, she simply said, the last aircraft cleared for takeoff was a company aircraft. A few minutes later, I called her back with a gate assignment. 
When she acknowledged the assignment on the radio, she was obviously crying. It's very strange. About two months ago, I saw a conversation on Facebook during the time of the 23rd anniversary of the crash of NWA 255 when someone mentioned some specific items that only someone there that day would know. So I asked this person if they were the DC-9 number two behind 255. And it was her. I couldn't believe it. So I just told her I was the person who she talked to for the gate, and I could tell she was crying. It was a short exchange, but very surreal. A couple of years later, I found out that the university I was kicked out of at 18, because of very poor academics, had a an aviation management technology program. I worked full-time and went to school at Eastern Michigan University part-time and maintained a 3.8 grade point average. I was a senior and close to graduating when I was promoted to go to Indianapolis as a manager. Unfortunately, that ended my college career. After spending about one and a half years in Indianapolis, I submitted my package for the position of ATC manager for Northwest at Detroit. My reputation of ATC familiarity was known and I was selected for the position. After about six months working that position and assigned to develop the non-movement area traffic flow at the new midfield terminal, it morphed into a shift position managing the control center. I was the manager in charge of the control center on September 11th, 2001. After the reports of the second aircraft flying into the World Trade Center, I speculated it wasn't an accident. I quickly notified the FAA tower to have all Northwest Airlines aircraft contact the company. I then advised the ramp controller and anyone talking to an aircraft to tell the flights to come back to the gate. Of course, many pilots were perplexed as to why this was necessary. One flight wanted to know why he had to return to the gate. I got on the radio and told them there was a national emergency and they could call me on the landline. Ha, I always thought that that was a goofy thing to say upon reaching the gate. However, I knew they would find out once they parked their aircraft and walked into the jetway. About two weeks later, I was kindly asked to leave the airline due to the drop in business. I couldn't believe they were actually letting me go. My dream job that I loved so much. (laughs) Son of a, hmm, or sons of blank. (laughs) Ha, luckily I landed on my feet. As fate would have it, my uncle, who was the station manager for Northwest Airlines in Orlando, McCoy Field, for several years heard the FAA was looking for laid-off airline managers to help beef up their ranks. As you know, the airlines were in charge of hiring the contract companies who provided the checkpoint security. The managers were responsible for the monitoring of training, recurrent training, and other aspects of these companies to maintain their FAA credentials. We were called ground security coordinators. So the FAA, knowing we had knowledge of the checkpoint process and regulations, wanted us to join them to provide the same. When I was hired, we were called FAA special agents. So when I asked for my firearm, they said, no, no, there will be no firearm. We are called special agents because we have the legal authority to investigate violations of the FARs. That's a made up story, by the way. I just wanted to illustrate why they were called special agents. Ha. After about seven months afterward, I jumped ship, kind of, and joined the Federal Air Marshal Service as the operations officer. At the time, the FAMs were just ramping up to hire thousands of air marshals, but the posting for the operations officer was limited to FAA personnel only, which I was at the time. The TSA took over shortly afterward, obviously. Just a few, minutes, uh, just a few months later, the FAMs figured out that the position should have been a law enforcement position, not a civilian. Uh-oh, too late. So they had to keep me as a civilian in a law enforcement position. 
In 2008, I finally had the money to start flying. I had most of the knowledge from my own studies and and, uh, studies at EMU, but no practical flying skills. I trained in a new Cessna 172-SP. What's that? You know, stuff? A 172 uh, it's just the, yeah, it's just the It's a special plane. SP, special plane. What, what SP stands for something. <laughs> someone, will, someone will tell me. Okay. But, you know, it says 172 just like goes through the alphabet of model numbers. Ah, like. uh, okay. Well, apparently this one had the G1000, which accounts for about 95% of my training. I was fortunate enough to have no problems on the radio from my experience as a ramp controller. Yeah, that is a benefit. That's one of the tough things when you learn how to fly, isn't it, Stuff uh, Having to fly the airplane and talk on the radio at the same time? Um, it, yeah, you know, I think that's different for different people, but I know that's a, definitely a challenge for a lot of folks. Yeah. Um, I was kind of fortunate. I learned to fly in a place where there wasn't a whole lot that had to be said because uh, there wasn't a lot of traffic. Yeah. And by the time you and, had to actually... And by the time I had to, I was past that point of being yeah, nervous about it. That is yeah. good. Yeah. Anyway, my instructor was perplexed by my lack of anxiety on the radio, which came easily for me. I think it was his first or second student. I was his first or second student. I had completed all of the requirements for the sign-off, including the 150 mile, I think, solo cross country. Right then, <clears throat> excuse me, right then he was hired at one of the regionals. So I spent the next year bouncing from instructor to instructor and eventually ran out of money. So here I sit today with over 100 hours and no ticket. Ugh. A second divorce and now living in an apartment. I'm afraid my flying days are over. Ah. Never say never, <laughs> Chris, never say never. So that's why your show is so important to me. I'm sure you're thinking he could have summed that up in a paragraph instead of this long email. <laughs> I apologize for the long email. I've always wanted to tell the story of my near ne'er-do-well aviation career. I tell my son, who is 24 now, in bits and pieces. I think he now knows more about aviation than he cares to. He always indulged me and asked questions, but I could tell when he got bored. Such a great kid, though. The little guy just moved to Denver, leaving me in Detroit by myself. Ha! Huh. I'm impressed with all of you and your flying careers and those like Dr. Stuff that don't do it for a career, but is a professional pilot just the same. Thank you. May uh, God bless you all and stay safe. And again, that's uh, Chris. Styers, and uh, I guess he's still up in, uh, yeah, still up in Detroit. Detroit. Very interesting. What a great um, story! Career, though. yeah. All you know, lots of different things and absolutely lots of stuff. I think you know a lot of people that l- listen yeah. to that, hear that, uh, can probably you know say, oh yeah, that sounds kind of like <laughs> like my career too, and uh, the ups and downs and stuff. But Definitely, it's plain tale time now. Mm-hmm. Oh. Oh, a little bird just told me. Somebody in the control room said, it's plain tales time now. Ooh. So, Ooh. which, of course, everybody knows is the best part of the show. And so, Definitely. let's get on to it. This week's Old Pilot's Plain Tale, Lest We Forget. The Old Pilot's Plain Tales, Lest We Forget. Had I been alive and living in my home on the 15th of April some 78 years ago, 
I expect that I would have been rudely awoken by the sound of an aircraft crashing a little less than 500 yards from where I live, around half a kilometre away. It was in the early pre-dawn, around five o'clock in the morning, that pilot officer Richard Price Hughes crashed his aircraft on the heathland near my house in Liss Forest. Born in 1906 to parents who were from the village of Shavington cum Gretzi, near Crewe in Cheshire, England, they were living in Argentina at the time on a cattle ranch near Buenos Aires. Richard and his cousin George grew up working the ranch with their families and learned to fly light aircraft as a way to cover the long distances over the South American pampas. When Britain declared war on Germany, many men from around the world declared themselves ready to fight for their mother country, including Richard and George. Richard went to the British Embassy in Buenos Aires and offered his service to the RAF, but he was told he was too old to join as a pilot. Undaunted, he and his cousin and some other expatriates left South America to travel the not inconsiderable distance to Canada, where the restrictions were thought to be easier to circumvent. Richard joined the Royal Canadian Air Force on October 17, 1940, in Ottawa, Ontario. He completed his training as a bomber pilot and, leaving his lovely wife and two children in Argentina, he set sail to fight the Nazis. On arriving safely on British soil, Richard was trained to fly the Handley Page Halifax, a four-engined heavy bomber. Although considered a poor relation to the Lancaster, the Halifax was heavily used by Bomber Command and they were kept on operations until the very end of the war. At its peak strength, Bomber Command operated a total of 76 Halifax-equipped squadrons. Although some had a poor opinion of the aircraft, the Hercules-engined machines had lower loss rates and higher crew survival rates after abandoning than the Lancasters, and the Halifax came very close to the Lancasters' speed and altitude performance. In June 1942, after the first 1,000 bomber raid on Germany, Arthur Harris, the AOC&C of Bomber Command, wrote to the builder of the Halifax and stated, My dear Handley Page, we much appreciate your telegram of congratulations on Saturday night's work, the success of which was very largely due to your support in giving us such a powerful weapon to wield. Between us, we will make a job of it. Richard had been posted to No. 10 Squadron Royal Air Force, which had been formed at Farnborough in 1915, and when flying Whitley's, became the first RAF unit to undertake operational sorties over Berlin in World War II. In 1941, they had converted to the Halifax 
flying out of Leeming in Yorkshire, the squadron was regularly involved in operations against Europe and Scandinavia. At the ripe old age of 33, and amongst so many very young crews, Richard was considered a bit of an old man, but he was determined to play his part. During the war, Bomber Command would fly a total of 364,000 operations, during which 8,325 aircraft would be lost. From a total of 125,000 aircrew who were in the command, 46%, that's 57,205, would perish. Although well past the average age of 21 for a crew member, Richard was far from the oldest. Pilot Officer Sir Arnold Wilson, a former Lieutenant Colonel in the Indian Army, was 56 when he was killed whilst flying as a rear gunner on Wellingtons. Whereas the youngest was Flight Sergeant Edward Wright of the Royal Canadian Air Force, killed aboard an Avro Lancaster at 16. Squadrons would normally be given the task of dispatching between 12 and 25 aircraft on a night attack, and at least one of their crews would usually fail to return for every two night operations. Despite this, it was quite normal for squadrons to lose multiple crews on a single night and on several occasions some squadrons lost five or six of their crews in a single night. Her crew were committed to a tour of 30 operational flights, and the most dangerous were the first and the last five. The average before becoming an unwelcome statistic was nine, and on the 15th of April 1942, Richard Hughes was flying his ninth operation. He was in his usual Halifax Mark II, Zulu Alpha Golf, on an operation to bomb the factories of Dortmund, Germany. With him were his crew, a Kiwi, pilot officer Ganderton, and sergeants Atkinson, Tyson, Triggle, Stubbley and Trembath. Reports of their mission vary but it appears that they might have had a problem finding their target and spent a while in the area until they successfully disgorged their load of explosives and headed for home. This left them uncomfortably short of fuel, and in addition, accounts have them struggling home on only two engines, with the other two on fire after they'd been engaged by the enemy. Unable to reach their home base of Leeming, some 250 miles to the north, Richard circled his crippled aircraft and ordered his crew to bail out. One by one they abandoned the Halifax and dropped into the darkness below until Richard was left alone at the controls. He began to lose height, spiralling slowly downwards, Perhaps looking for a place to crash land, or, more likely, he had finally left the cockpit to try and get to an escape hatch. Before he could reach safety, the big bomber stalled and then span downwards, hitting the ground in an open area near the village of Lys Forest. 
His crew had all escaped the doomed aircraft safely, but Richard died in the wreckage. In the meantime, Richard's cousin, Flight Lieutenant George Hughes, was serving with Number 105 Squadron, RAF, famous for flying the Bristol Blenheim and then the Wooden Wonder that was the de Havilland Mosquito. The squadron was well known, particularly since its Australian commanding officer had been awarded the Victoria Cross, Britain's highest award for bravery. Their Commodore, Sir Huey Edwards, then a squadron leader, had led his squadron of Blenheims on Operation Wreckage in 1941 against the port of Bremen, one of the most heavily defended towns in Germany. Edwards' force of 12 Blenheims attacked at low level through a maze of wires, cable and enemy fire. As his citation recalls, Flying at a height of little more than 50 feet, passing under high-tension cables, carrying away telegraph wires, and finally passing through a formidable balloon barrage, on reaching Bremen he was met with a hail of fire, all his aircraft being hit and four of them being destroyed. Nevertheless, he made a most successful attack and then with the greatest skill and coolness withdrew the surviving aircraft without further loss. Wing Commander Edwards, although handicapped by a physical disability resulting from a flying accident, he had been very badly injured, abandoning a crippled aircraft, when his parachute had tangled with the radio aerial and he was dragged down into the crash. He repeatedly displayed gallantry of the highest order, impressing home bombing attacks from very low heights against strongly defended objectives. George was 29 when he was part of a raid on the U-boat pens at Flensburg in Denmark, but they were forced to move to a secondary target, the railway yards at Tuna. They were following the railway lines north, when they found a train to attack, but then they were engaged first by anti-aircraft fire and then by a Messerschmitt BF-109 and brought down. Apparently, George tried to crash land in fields close to a river. The aircraft hit the ground and then continued careering on for over a mile, ploughing through wires and hitting banks until it broke up. One of the crew was killed during the crash, and the other seriously injured. It died on the way to a hospital. Within three months, both of these brave men were dead. Richard's body was returned to the village of Wybunbury in Cheshire, where he was buried with full military honours in the churchyard of St Chad. George's body remained in Denmark, in Forfelt Cemetery, Jutland, not far from the location of the crash. What follows are the words of Father J.P. Landy, a chaplain in the Royal Canadian Air Force, and is inscribed on the Bomber Command Memorial Wall in Nanton, Alberta. The wall bears the names of both Richard 
and George Hughes. Three thousand miles across a hunted ocean they came, wearing on the shoulder of their tunics the treasured name Canada, telling the world of their origin, fashioned by their maker to love, not to kill, but proud and earnest in their mission to stand, and if it had to be, to die for their country and freedom. One day, when the history of the 20th century is finally written, it will be recorded that when human society stood at the crossroads and civilization itself was under siege, the Royal Canadian Air Force was there to fill the breach and help give humanity the victory. And all those who had a part in it will have left to posterity a legacy of honour, of courage and of valour that time can never despoil. In addition to all the impressive memorials that exist to these brave men, at the location of the crash there is a small marker reminding us of one man who gave his today so that we may have a tomorrow. I pass it regularly and often think of Richard Hughes and his sacrifice and the loss that must have been felt by his family in Argentina. As we approach the 11th of the 11th, Jilly and I have a little tradition, and we place a cross on the marker, lest we forget. Wow. Very, very powerful story and another great one. Thank you very much, Jeff. Yeah, it's a very personal one. Um, Not a great hero that most of us, well, hardly any of us will have heard of, but because it's a little spot so close to my home, uh, and I managed to find out a little about uh, the two Hughes boys, uh, I just thought it was a lovely story to tell on this day. So is no, it's a perfect story for the day, and it was amazing to me though that they it, like travel from Argentina. That's wow. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, they started off in the UK, went to Argentina to become cattle ranchers. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a, a few families there, and, and then uh, up Canada. to Canada, and then mm-hmm. back to Britain. Yeah, and then sadly, uh, the two boys to die within three months of each other. I mean, mm. not the first story I've told that is <laughs> like that. Uh, you remember the two brothers who died within a few days of each other uh, during the battle. Mm. Yeah, it, uh, there are these coincidences all the way yeah. through the wars we fought, and uh, <laughs> they just add to the sadness and of the loss. Um, just makes it hard really well toward toward the end of the plane tale uh, there was a little video footage and i swear the dogs look that in that video look so much like your your dogs <laughs> well that was just a couple of days ago <laughs> i went up there with our little cross and uh <laughs> and put it in the 
in the pile of uh, flint. There, there, there's a lot of flint in this area. In fact, mm. uh, people used it. Uh, you see a lot of the old houses have got um, the outside of the house is faced with flint. It's a mm. uh, it's a common and uh, um, very strong material. But uh, yeah, that's where we walk our dogs every day. And uh, often, I, like I say, we walk past that uh, little marker there so often. Yeah. And uh, uh, it was uh, really interesting for me, actually, to finally uh, tackle the job of trying to get uh, some information. Well, it was beautifully done, as always. Mm-hmm. 45 minutes left, Jeff. All right. The control room says we have about 45 minutes remaining in our show. That mean, That's good news. That means we have more time to cover some more feedback and let's uh resume with uh eight from darren he says hi apg friends i've sent him pictures of a few of my model airplane projects and i thought i'd show you my most recent build which is a fairy swordfish as you can see the unemployment life is keeping me busy thanks covid (laughs) by the way I'm so glad you're back making episodes. Had I known such a long drought was coming, I wouldn't have blown through all the old episodes so fast and saved some for that dry spell. Well, <laughs> yeah, you know what? We didn't know it either. It was a last minute decision and uh, I didn't want to do that, but uh, I felt it necessary for better chances of success. And you could always go back and listen to them twice. Yeah, true. <laughs> Sorry, That's what I do I'm every joking. show. <laughs> At least two well, you times. have to, Jeff. Come on. <laughs> and you know what? They get funnier every time I listen to them. Believe it or not. Um, uh, anyway. I, I was in huge admiration uh, on looking at Darren's uh, pictures of his model. And I love the fact that you forget, uh, photographed it, Darren, on a nice shiny surface. I guess that's a, a bit of a car, like a car there, so we mm-hmm. can see it. It looks, it looks super. It almost looks like water, doesn't it? Like it does. Just the, it looks until you look superb. closely, you go, oh, okay, yeah. It's just the detail and the fact that it doesn't look like anything like a you know new aircraft. You've managed to make every edge of it look like worn and like around the cockpits where hands will have gripped. It's all worn and uh, gone a bit shiny. I, I think it's brilliant, absolutely brilliant, lovely model. Well, I think you know the the key to you know, making these models look so realistic is the paint and, and um, the uh, making it look like it's not brand new paint, but it's worn. And I mean, Darren, you really have a talent for, for doing this. It's an art, I think. Mm -hmm. And the detail, considering the size of the model, you've got a lovely little photograph towards the end, looking in the cockpits uh, and you're, uh, there's a finger there and I'm just going, wow. Uh, you know you've managed to fit so much detail into such a small model yeah Uh, and out of interest the next plain tale will involve uh, a little bit about the um the swordfish uh Hmm. known by its uh crews and pilots as the string bag um uh, because uh it was such a successful aircraft that the aircraft that the navy brought in to replace it uh was got rid of (laughs) before the swordfish because Mm. it was you know considered inferior the swordfish was uh, uh, a remarkable airplane and uh, and famously um, the Royal Navy crippled the Italian uh, uh, Navy in uh, Taranto the um, harbour of Taranto 
when they attacked and they sank about half of the capital ships of the Italian Navy on one attack. It was a phenomenal affair considering they were using uh, old biplanes. Hmm. Um, No modern torpedo bombers. These fellows were going in there and doing it. And they did a remarkable job. Uh, Another plane tower. Oh, sounds like it. Excellent. (laughs) <laughs> so, hey, if you want to see these photos of Darren's amazing, exquisite, I'd say, work on uh, model aircraft, uh, check it out in the show notes. Yeah, a really good job. Well done, Darren. Um, continuing on with some audio from, not sure how you pronounce this guy's name. It's G-E-O-F-G-O-F from G. Hard G or soft? G- G- oh, wait, you're right. G- Gioff. Well, here, let me, maybe he says so. Let's listen. Hey there, Liz and supporting APG crew, APG members, and APG passengers. Flight team, airmen, in training, Jeff here. First, I want to address your main man, Micah, has pulled you below the 50% mark. That's correct. The spelling of Jeff is G-E-O-F-F. But let's get to the reason for the message. Jeff? I want to expand hmm. on my response to JJ at AVL. I've been learning a lot. Micah did a great job but there's more. For you aviation enthusiasts, head out to FAA.gov and look up the CFRs. I'm referring to Title 14, Chapter 1. It's riveting. I've been studying it in school. Micah mentioned Subchapter H, Part 147, which referenced AMT schools. And there's another tidbit about repair stations in Part 145. So there's more options than just AMP. And then if we go back a little bit to Subchapter D, There's a part 65 about airmen. These are other than flight crew members, and there's many of them. And we're kind of talking about subpart D, which refers to A&Ps, and subpart E, which is about repairmen. Now, repairmen can work in aviation under the supervision of maybe an AMT or an A&P or a repair station and some others. So they can inspect um, or and do certain procedures it's kind of like I've seen in the medical profession, maybe Dr. Steph has seen this before, where you have a nurse or somebody who can do some of the procedures that doctors do, and then a doctor just has to kind of sign off on it and say, yeah, that work was done right. Um, so I'm going to back up a little bit more to subchapter C, part 43. Um, there's uh, part 43.3 through 7 talk about who can work on aircraft, which includes repairmen, pilots, owner operators, and then it goes on to talk about what and how to maintain an aircraft. You know, so many people nowadays, they take their car to a Jiffy Lube and then they get shuffled off to this little room. They're not involved with the whole process. So I really, they really do want everybody to be involved because these things are really important and to maintain them. If you help maintain them, whether you're actually doing the work or getting inspected, it makes you more involved and it's more valuable. So I really do recommend reading up on that. So just to summarize, part 147 is about the schools, but there's more to that. And it doesn't hurt to get a copy of the CFRs, uh, get a pot of coffee, tape your eyelids open and study up. (laughs) Whether you want to be a pilot, an AMT, a repairman, a jumper, a dumper, or whatever, uh, go out there and impress your friends with the legalese that you've learned. (laughs) Thanks, everybody. Clear skies, tailwinds, safe landings. Have a great day. 
I really wish that Rick were here on today's show because he would have really appreciated that feedback. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, so. I love uh, the way Jeff delivered that. Do you think he could speak a little faster for us next <laughs> it time? It sounded though? very much like a telemarketing pitch of some sort. Uh, appreciate that. I mean, no, if you're going to talk about that type of subject matter, you have to be um, enthusiastic in order yes. to... Oh, he was enthusiastic. He, you could tell it. As he, he put his heart and soul into that. I that was, was good stuff. I, I do like I Hallbox's comment here, though, about if you're all through all the APG episodes, just start reading the CFRs. Yeah, <laughs> it's a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, good stuff. Yeah, good information though, and I, I think uh, JJ and AVL will be um, glad to have that, those recommendations. Yes, thank you, Jeff. Now that I know how to pronounce the your name even though you spell it mm. wrong all right um just kidding becky writes in uh she so she starts off this is good easy question <laughs> like otherwise we probably would have just put that in the trash um, for you. by the way totally get you your need to focus on training but want to also say that i really miss you folks you are an important part of my stay sane in 2020 plan. Does this mean they want to hire them and then get them type? This is the question. Does this mean they want to hire them and then get them type rated or that they could be an FO without the typewriting? And then she sent us a link to the subject matter of the question from aviationjobs.me. <laughs> what, what that is dot me um and this is becky Roush. middle east yeah middle east really that's what that stands yeah, for so. I would have oh, so. middle okay. east yeah how about that i didn't know that okay um so the uh article is a320 non-type rated first officers fly a deal saudi arabia uh from riyadh um Jeddah, riyadh anyway um Fly, fly a deal. I guess that's all one word. Is that a company? I guess yeah, it's an airline. It's on the side of the airplane, so I guess it's their oh. name. Is currently looking for A320 non-type rated first officers to be based in Saudi Arabia. This position is only open to Saudi nationals. And then uh, the required skills, uh, English for the language, obviously, because that's the international language of aviation. Below 50 years old. Oh, so you have to be really, really young. Um ICAO, uh, ATPL, or CPL. Really? Uh, your, your frame of reference is so skewed <laughs> well, anyway. Okay, just leave me alone, okay? Okay. Let fine. me be in my own little delusional world. Uh, okay. ICAO Class 1 Flight Crew Medical Certificate, 1,500 validated flying hours on turbojet aircraft with FMC, EFIS, or glass cockpit equipment. ICAO Level 4 Proficiency in English Language or Higher, Verifiable and Certified Logbook Hours. And no record of flight accident incident, no criminal record, and no evidence that you've listened to the Airline Pilot Guide podcast. <laughs> That's the oh. most important there at the end. <laughs> Anyone who's written to us now is no longer done. I know. Well, so, uh, I don't know. I, I know nothing, as Sergeant Schultz would say in Hogan's <laughs> Heroes. Um, do you... Do you have any ideas, anybody, uh, Nick, perhaps? Well, I can't imagine they would allow a non-rated first officer to operate an aeroplane, because I think that's illegal. Uh, although I'm not 100% sure about that, because I have heard of some uh, strange anomalies with that. But no, it sounds to me like they just want guys with a lot of qualifications, and they will give you a type rating. So. Makes sense. 
Hey, yep. uh, this airline that I'm flying for hired me without a type rating. But it mine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there you go. That's happened, you know, with success yeah. on occasion. Mm, yeah, yeah uh, type rating is quite expensive, you know, yeah, seven is. or eight grand. Uh, I'm sure if you're going to go out and get it on your own, that's a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, amongst all the other costs of training, uh, there's some things that the airline should organize for you. And apart from anything else, um, learning to fly and doing your type rating with your the company you're going to work with so much easier because you learn your SOPs mm-hmm. uh, while you're doing it. So makes when I, sense. When I was um, looking to be hired back in well, almost 32 years ago, um, one airline in particular, and I don't think that they're requiring this anymore, or maybe they are, I don't know, uh, Southwest uh, was requiring that when you applied that you had a full 737, 737 type, rating. type rating. And that's, mm-hmm. at that time, uh, mind you, this is three decades ago. That was like 10 grand. Wow. So who knows how much it is now? But, well, it's cheap because 737s, you know, they're over. Yeah. Dime a dozen. <laughs> yeah. Well, you can get it for a hundred quid. <laughs> really? That's a deal. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to look up to see if they still require that because it definitely was. Yeah, I, I know the uh, thing. Uh, I mean, as, as recently as like maybe even ten or fifteen years ago. Yeah, um, I, I thought I I'd heard somebody say that they now. don't require it anymore, but I don't know. I guess it maybe depends on the hiring cycle and the supply and demand and all that kind of stuff. Maybe uh, from twenty fifteen, no longer requires seven thirty seven type uh, rating. Okay, from, at least from one uh, website that claims to have information. Is it is it on the internet? It's on the internet. That's got to be right. Must gotta be, be true. true. <laughs> <laughs> some some airline job forum website. Yeah. Interesting. Anyway. All right, Becky. Well, uh, I'm or we are glad that you're glad that we're back because we're happy to be here. And moving on, Jay sent this in. Uh, he says, um, hello, APG crew. I'm finishing up my instrument rating at Lyft. Uh, L-I-F-T, and wanted to say thank you. If I had not heard your interview with Scottish Steve, I'm sure I would not be following this dream. Attached is a picture taken last winter with Steve. God bless the APG crew and look forward to seeing you again at Air Venture. And this is from J.D. McClintock. Now, I don't. I thought it was Louisiana Steve. Is it Scottish Steve? Did he did he move to a different country? Maybe that's another one of his nicknames. I know, perhaps he's wearing a skirt like Rick does sometimes. Oh, and just calling everybody he's Scottish. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it could be. Yeah. So, uh, well, regardless, uh, Jay, what a great picture um, of the two of them. Oh, wait, did we put that on the... Uh, oh, sorry. Yep, here we sorry. go. Uh, I got it. Okay. There they okay. are. Look at those two handsome gentlemen from Lyft Academy. Awesome. Haven't heard from uh, Steve in a while, Steve Nicholson, and... Uh, so look forward to hearing some feedback from him to see how things are going in these COVID times. So. Indeed. All right. Um, thanks, Liz. Uh, Jeffrey. Uh, wow, this is the Jeff show. Um, I'm confused. How is this name spelled? Well, this how one's do you spell spelled, your name? This one's spelled correctly. J-E-F-F-R-E-Y. Um, he sent us a link to an article from cnn.com i think (laughs) yeah cnn business 
Um, I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's a long article. It's an interesting one, but it talks about the uh, basically how the investigators found a jet engine, actually a part of a jet engine, the big fan assembly that came off that A380 Air France flight uh, several oh, years yeah, ago. I remember, I remember the uh, news article where they discovered it, and I was going, how the hell do you find a chunk of metal that's like, like 12 feet of snow, right? Yeah, and, and it's yeah. In, across the entire Greenland. And I'm going, nah. I know. But amazing. It's crazy. And and this article does a really good job of explaining how several of the technologies they employed that they thought for sure would help them find it didn't really help at all. And how one person and his um, invention basically led to uh, the discovery of the, uh, of the item. Oh, I thought some bloke fell down a hole and... Sat on it by accident. Mm, no? That's an alternative painful, uh, but, uh, story. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's, that's really what happened. That's a fable, Liz says. <laughs> um, anyway, so we're going to put a link to that story in the show notes and, and check it out. It was, uh, as I said, it's a, kind of a long article, but it was definitely worth a read. And continue. Yeah, it was uh, fascinating. The, the effort they went to, I mean, it was Usually expensive. Mm-hmm. The effort they uh, they undertook to try and find this vital bit of a, a A380 engine that had come loose to try and discover what the fault. I still find it remarkable the uh, amount of financial investment people are prepared to put in to discover the causes of accidents. Mm-hmm. It just shows the importance we have uh, on the level of safety that we fly to. And I was mm-hmm. going to say, interestingly, um, the engine manufacturers and, and investigation authorities were sure that it had it was some kind of a maintenance, you know, misapplication of maintenance procedures yeah. or something. But turns out, when they actually found the part, that it was a, a, a design flaw of the material used in the uh, creation of those uh, fan blades. So, what do they call that? Cold something? Cold sink? Oh, it's called... Cold, uh, Something cold fatigue, wasn't it? Cold well, fatigue. We just talked about of course, it's cold. Yeah. It's not too long. cold. Uh, it was on a recent episode. Yeah, it was well, not too long ago we talked it. about that. What'd you say, Liz? Fatigue, wasn't it? Cold fatigue. Cold, fa- cold. cold play. No, that's a band, I think. Um, no, fatigue. <laughs> <Okay>. Fatigue, cold, <laughs> cold yeah, fatigue. I've got cool. their album, Parachute. <laughs> there you go. They had something to do with it. I don't know. Read the article, you'll find out all about it. Okay. Um, Ramblin' Ron writes in. Hi, Jeff. Hope your transition training data download into your and mine aging gray matter is proceeding well. Long-time listener, first-time participant. I found this PDF especially especially of interest. I was amazed at the variety of civilian aircraft that were militarized for the war effort. Also, many aircraft I've never seen before. The losses for each are listed as well. Finally, the many designs from World War II that were still in service. And this PDF of which he speaks is entitled United States Fixed Wing Aircraft Losses of the Vietnam War, 1962 to 1973. Actually, that's just the first part. I think there's another part where it talks about uh, rotary wing losses as well. And it has pictures and stats on all of these various um military airplanes and slash civilian turned into military aircraft and how many were lost in combat. And it's just staggering the, the numbers here. I, I 
Like for instance, the first item listed, of course, is arguably one of the best airplanes ever made, right, Nick? The, oh yeah, F four Phantom. Uh, yeah, five hundred. I thought it was the one just below that. The one right one below it is a close second. <laughs> the, well, that's got one of the best Burdock. stories <laughs> of the Vietnam War attached to it. That's true. It does. Yeah. Remember that, Mister uh, Colonel Bung Lee and his yes. amazing flight to escape. Mm-hmm. Uh, and land that bird dog on, on a carrier. carrier. You I, should do a plane tail on that. <laughs> oh, wait a minute, you did. <laughs> and let me think, I will call it Flight of a Bird Dog or something. Oh, that's a good title. Sounds, that's a good it's idea. very clever, yes. <laughs> look forward to hearing that. I'm going to include this in the show notes. Um, you should take a look at it. Um, I just scrolled down to the rotary wing aircraft losses of the Vietnam War. And the first uh, helicopter listed there was a Huey uh, HU-1. or Yeah. Um, and... Look at the oh number that was lost. 3,254 lost. That's wow. amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. What? Yeah. So, anyway, well, check it out. Sometimes it says they were lost, and sometimes it says they were in combat. I, did, mm-hmm. I guess that means they were lost. I guess they haven't been able to sort out the statistics, but... Uh, yeah. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. Wow. Well, thank you. Yes, uh, Liz says, between the article about the search for the lost part off the A380 in Greenland and this PDF of the aircraft losses of Vietnam War, we're giving you all a lot of reading material. You're welcome. Yeah. You've got your homework. <laughs> right. There'll be a test. There By the will way, be a test, Liz says. At yes, the very sir. bottom of that PDF, Jeff, yeah. uh, the North Vietnamese aircraft loss. Mm. Oh, yeah. Not very, yeah. not as many as, <laughs> as we did. No. I don't know what that really so, says. Mm. Neither do I. I'm not even going to go there. I didn't realize we'd, I think it said like 17 B-52s were lost. Really? I had no idea. Yeah. I think so. I'm relying upon my memory, so I could be completely wrong. But if I am, please don't tell me because I'm very thin-skinned. And yeah, 17 in combat. 17, 14. 14 in non-combat situations. <laughs> They're not easy to fly, apparently. Apparently. All right. Robert from Mayretta, or Marietta, most people say. Is this uh, Hamish? Um, nope, this no. one's uh, the guy that lives uh, just up the road from the big Thompson. chicken. <laughs> yeah, Robert Thompson. And uh, I'm not okay. kidding. I'm not kidding. Right, Steph? The big chicken? You know sure. about the big chicken. Oh, I, I guess she doesn't. don't know about the big okay, chicken, but I believe you. Well, I'm sure somebody out there listening does. Okay. Uh, He says, just curious, after reading this article, if any of you have had a few degrees of separation from airframe or engine, quote, teething problems, curious to hear your opinions. And this is an article from Bloomberg.com. And uh, the title is, Pilots Shut Down Pratt & Whitney Engine on Airbus Midair Even After Fixes. And this was written on October 13th by... Anurag Katoki. No idea if I said that right. Sure. Uh, <laughs> excuse me. Uh, pilots of an Airbus <laughs> SEA320 Neo jet in India shut down a Pratt & Whitney engine midair last month after it encountered problems. People familiar with the incident said, oh, they had some fault, maybe. Some um, fault. Mm-hmm. And inconvenienced. Oh, they didn't have a midair. I was expecting you to be following a midair after no. the, the no. headline. <laughs> um, Engine on Airbus all kinds of, midair. You know, we, we're going to get this guy to write an aviation article, and we're just going to give him all the aviation jargon and just let him use it however he sees 
Just throw it at it. like Just throw these terms shrapnel. at it. Like, and yeah. Most people have no idea whether it's right or not. I'm sure it's right, though. And then throw in a picture of completely the wrong aircraft type, and it'll be perfect. <laughs> yes, perfect. The icing on the cake. Um, so anyway, these uh, this particular model of engine um, powering the Airbus, or some of the Airbus A320neos, Pratt & Whitney, uh, has been plagued with, by issues since their debut in early 2016. The twin-engine jet, operated by Go Airlines India Limited, landed safely using its other engine in the western city of Ahmedabad on September. Ahmedabad. Darn it! What is it? I've actually been there. Um, it is spelled like Ahmedabad, but yeah. they pronounce it Ahmedabad. Ahmedabad. Okay. I'm the bad. I'm the bad. Well, yeah. I'm the bad. Sure, you are. <laughs> uh, is that right? No. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Uh, you can tell we're getting toward the end of the show here. We're losing, <laughs> losing it. Um, anyway, uh, people familiar with the matter said uh, that it landed safely, um, but the matter is confidential. Both the engine's turbines have already been modified following repeated glitches. Uh-oh, those glitches. Uh, Indian regulators are looking into faults in the engine's heat management and oil systems as possible causes. I'd heard, I don't know. Uh, Some faults. There are some faults, um, and apparently there were some people inconvenienced. Um, that the this particular uh, what do they call geared turbofan engines, uh, mm-hmm. especially yeah. this Pratt and Whitney version, uh, requires a really long warm up time because of what they just said here: heat management um, issues. If you don't let it warm up for quite some time, if you demand something from the engine, then it's it's not good. It'll they'll break. So yeah, like you have to wait for the um, metallurgical issues. You know, the the metal you know get to a certain temperature before you're allowed to. And I have to say, most pilots I've met are very unsympathetic to such time restrictions. Yes, yeah, you're under the pressure to get you know get yeah. that thing started and get nope. going, and you go, no, nope, you can't do that. Yeah. By the way, the uh, the engines on the Mini Dog Seven One Seven they take a long time to start up. Um, Maybe because of the, I don't know, it probably has nothing to do with You need to pedal issue. harder, Jeff. Yeah, but you have to really think ahead, though. You have to really, you know, think about starting the engines a lot sooner than, you know, other airplanes. Really? Like how long? Um, like about an hour? No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> it seems like that. <laughs> I thought it's we were a, past the coal burning point. It's like, the, the, yeah, I know. It's a, it's a cleaner coal. Um, it's like... Um, Three minutes from the time you start the sequence to the time that it's finally like reached dial or something like that. It's just, I don't know. Maybe and then it's just you have me. to wait for it to warm up. Um, no, after the three minutes. Um, oh, no, I think you have to wait for another three minutes after that. I don't know. It's it's a while. Just you'll, you'll work it out. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. Don't ask me detailed <laughs> questions fine. right now because I probably should know that. But um, so basically what I've been doing is just leaving them run the whole time, even when we're at the gate. So you don't have to worry about, you know, warm up times. So they're just always running. <laughs> never shut of course, I've had some issues with, you know, people getting sure sucked the into the engines and stuff. And little minor yeah. details. On the ramp and things. <laughs> yeah. A little bit of a hazard. A, a, you haven't got a rear entry uh, facility, have you? <laughs> well, <laughs> excuse me? <laughs> Can people Different show crawl pick. up your backside? <laughs> Not any better. <laughs> <laughs> Air stairs. Have you got a rear stair. Oh, 
<laughs> gotcha. Uh, no, we don't. Believe it or not. Oh, okay. oh, so J.B. Cooper would have been. He would have been out of luck on a Boeing 717. <laughs> there yeah. is no air stair on this airplane, which I kind of miss. I mean, it's kind of nice to have that capability, but nope. Anyway. Well, in case you need to escape from the passengers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> in a hurry. Yes. Well, anyway, if you're interested in reading about this, uh, it'll be in the show notes. Thank you, Robert. Oh, no, he asked the question. We didn't answer his question. Have we ever been uh, had a few degrees of separation from airframe or engine teething problems? I don't think I have, Nick. You? Uh, I I don't think because the only degree of separation I have is that our airline had the uh, 787 uh, Mm. with the Rolls-Royce engines. Yeah. And uh, they, of course, suffered um, Lots of blade things. degradation through corrosion, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that grounded a lot of our, our aircraft. And as a result, I had to work twice as hard uh, to fill the gaps because the Airbus was picking up the load for all these grounded uh, um, bin liners, uh, dream liners, sorry. So, um, yeah. <laughs> it's been so, so long since we've heard it, that. it has been a while. I was thinking, I was like, wow, I haven't heard that term in a long time. Yeah. Glad we resurrected that one. I'm glad we gave yeah. Nick an opportunity. The opportunity. To use it. Well, Rick's not here, so I can't <laughs> upset him. So. Um, yeah. So, indirectly, yeah, it, you were affected by the Most teething certainly. problems on that airplane. Yeah. Steph, you? No, not that I can no. think of. Uh, I had some teething problems, but I went to the dentist and got it all taken care of. Bad one pulled. Yeah. yeah. Root canals, etc. <laughs> Thankfully, no to yeah. both of those. Okay. This is from Silvio, uh Sylvester. He says, I passed well, I'm not gonna tell you what he said in the title. <laughs> I'm gonna tell you in the in the body of it right here. Hey Jeff, have been slacking a bit on the podcast. Oh, <gasps> been working with um Hillel. Um <laughs> however, in case you were wondering. If I'm still flying, yes, I've passed my check ride today. Enthusiastic. Yes. Your podcast was a valuable source of information. And for that, <laughs> thank you. Well, 50% of it was. Yeah. Anyway. Well, you know. As long as you picked out the, the valid bits. Yeah. Then. Yeah. Obviously, uh, he which did. check ride was this? Well, I uh, wrote back to him and said, "Congratulations! Remind me which certificate slash license were you studying for?" And he said, "Private pilot certificate." I'm a former student of Rob Mark, and oh, really? when I passed it, to my surprise, I passed it with over ninety percent. <laughs> he says it took me three years off and on, but I did have to take on three occasions, one month alone for flying day after day. Not sure if this can encourage someone to stick with it and see it through to the end, but I hope it helps. And then I wrote back to him, that's awesome. And I understand your surprise as Rob Mark had something to do with it. (laughs) (laughs) Do we know Rob Mark? Rob Mark was a long time and one of the, I think one of the original hosts of the longest running aviation podcast and arguably probably the best out there, uh, Airplane Geeks. And uh, uh, he is also the um, senior editor, I believe, of Flying Magazine. You may have heard of mm-hmm. that magazine. Uh, yeah, he's yeah. A, a stalwart in he's the uh, world big. of yeah. writing uh, journalism, aviation journalism. Well, congratulations, Rob. And brilliant job, uh, Sylvester. Yes. I think that really um, should be inspiring to people to stick with it, you know, because sometimes mm-hmm. things come up and happen. And we even heard from someone earlier today, you know, started and... Yeah. Had a bunch of hours and 
you know, life challenges crop up, but if the opportunity presents itself again, get back into it. Why not? And Sylvia's that, that example that, you know, mm-hmm. that's why I said to that, I think it was Chris earlier, don't, you know, never say never. Don't give up. Never say never. Yeah. Never know. Just like, uh, and also Larry, Gregory, you mm-hmm. know, I'd been like, what do you say? 12 years since he had flown and he mm-hmm. went ahead and got requalified. Yeah. All right. And finally, did a great job, Liz, of uh, making this timed perfectly um because we're just about at the end of our three hour time limit here um steve wrote in steve in pittsburgh now first of all i'm I'm going to apologize this is not me saying this this is steve in pittsburgh we'll give you his email address and phone number uh, later if you (laughs) want it um, there are a couple of people that I know that listen to our show that are not going to like what he says here. I just finished episode 446 with a story of flying with dogs, followed by a discussion of the number of cockpit crew members. When I had a eureka moment, are navigators real actually dogs? <laughs> oh, yeah. You're going to get some hate mail for yeah, that one, Steve. I did not say that. Steve, I mean, Steve you know, in Pittsburgh. If you are a navigator and you would like to respond to Steve, or if you're a dog and would like to respond to Steve. <laughs> yeah, either yeah, might be offended. To dogs Steve offended be more. me at Airline yeah, Pelican. Dogs are going to be more insulting than the navigators. Because, <laughs> I mean, calling a navigator a dog is probably something of a compliment. Because <laughs> there are a lot worse terms thrown around oh there in the pilot community. Captain Nick at Airline Pelican. I've had to fly with them. Jim Howard and Mike Dell are two people that I can think of right offhand mm-hmm. that are probably yeah. taking a little yeah. offense They're to this. Typing right yeah, this way. Yes, directional <laughs> consultants. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Stephen Pittsburgh says, clear skies, tail wags, etc. <laughs> tail wags Brilliant. instead of tailwinds. I love it. Great. Actually, that reminds me of a picture I saw of uh, a couple of red setters in the back of an airplane getting requalified. So they were obviously doing the navigating. <laughs> Must have been. Yeah. <laughs> An uncanny sense of direction they have. Uh, absolutely. They point way very well. Yeah. Over there. Good point. Oh, over there. I didn't mean to say that. Sorry. <laughs> But I'll probably put a rim shot in there anyway, as if I actually plan to do that. Mm -hmm. Anyway, well, it's time now for us to end episode 448. So much fun that we have uh, coming together every week and talking mostly aviation related stuff. (laughs) The rest of it's rubbish. Most of it, yeah. (laughs) But, you know, 50% at least. We have to have an excuse to get together every week. So, aviation is it. It's like, uh, was it Becky that said we were part of our stay sane in 2020 mm-hmm. plan? This is just part of our stay sane plan. Exactly. It Being really able is. To talk it's not to each working, other. but yeah. it's a plan. I'm sorry, in my case, it's not working very well. Yeah, Liz said the same thing. It's not working in my case. <laughs> <laughs> just me then. Okay. Yeah. 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 That's fine. No, I think, well, uh, probably just you. Yeah. All right. Well, um, as you all know who have been listening for quite some time, uh, we have this wonderful website. And uh, it's called AirlinePilotGuy.com. And on it, you will find information about the crew and the community, which is the best part of this whole thing. I mean, Plain Tales is a big part of it, but the community is even better. And uh, But you can find out about Plain Tales as well. That's a separate uh, page on our site. Um, we have the APG library. If you're uh, the sort who knows how to read, uh, I don't. So I really can't take advantage of it. But... <laughs> Um, our lovely, uh, librarian, Tiffany, uh, manages that for us and there's merchandise and there's information about how you can join the coffee fund and so much more, uh, again, airlinepilotguy.com. Uh, 
www.thinkingmedia.com. And we're also on social media. I like to call it social meds. Hey, check out the social meds. You can head over to your choice of social media platform. We're at Twitter. We are at APG Crew on Twitter. We are also at APG Crew on Instagram. And if you're more of a Facebook uh, type of person, that's facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. So check out those uh, social media sites. We hope to see you there. And uh, lots of the community is there as well. Very, very true. And we also have a bunch of slackers here at the APG um, using the quasi social media platform Slack. And uh, the man who manages that, let me see if he's uh, available. Hello. Hello. It's time for time for Slack, your Slack segment. Jeff, this is my private time. Would you let me finish a poo for once? I'm sorry that you all had to hear that. Um, <laughs> I didn't want to hear his poo well, there. We might have to wait a bit before he you, is... Wait a minute. Okay, here he comes. He's going to tell us about Slack. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Thanks a lot, Hillel. Your timing is great, Jeff. I know, I've been told that many, many times yeah. in my life. I'm still unclear in that photo if it's a loofah or a burrito. That That's he's got a loofah burrito. A loofah burrito. A loofah burrito. Okay. <laughs> I mean, either way, it's fine. I just, you know. You're going to have to ask Hillel yourself okay. someday. Dangerous. Yeah. And uh, also a big round of applause to our producer-director, Liz, in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Thank you, Liz, for all the hard work you do each and every week. Thank you, Poppy. Mm -hmm. Yes, and uh, shout out to uh, your new puppy named Poppy. Shall I show her on the screen? Yeah, show her on the screen, Liz. Okay, here we go. She's going to join us. Okay, you want to pop it for you? There we go. Yeah, look at there she is. Oh, oh, oh very funny. <laughs> this is great. What's up? All right, there she is with Poppy. Oh, Poppy's waving. Hey. Oh, Poppy. What a cute puppy. What a cute little puppy. Poppy's yes. sleepy. <laughs> Poppy's bedtime. And yeah. with that, I think it's time now for us to say, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. What's so funny about that? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. Good day.
I used to be such a good, good pilot Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline, not a guy I fly Cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, not a guy I fly